Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have banded together to battle evil. They are the heroes of World War II, as well as their sons and daughters, protégés and godchildren. Two True Freaks presents The Tales of the Justice Society of America! And welcome back to the Tales of the Justice Society of America. My name is Michael Bailey, and as always, I am joined by my good buddy and president of the Scott H. R. Gardner Fan Club, Mr. Scott H. Gardner. <laughs> I like the company so much, I bought it. So there you go. <laughs> you're, you're, you're not only uh, the president, you're also a client. So. <laughs> And shares, uh, the number one shareholder. There you go. <laughs> well, the majority, sold. the majority. There you go. Sole sh- shareholder. That's it. That's, <laughs> that's what I was looking for. It's a small <laughs> mom and pop. You, uh, you guys are, you guys are hoping to expand in the new year. But <laughs> it's a, it's a startup. <laughs> ah, we're we're weird already. Very good. Uh. Oh, it's because it's it's ridiculous AM. That's why. But uh, dude, I am so so jazzed up. For uh, for what we've got going on mm-hmm. for uh, for this episode, so yeah, it's a good it's a good thing I'm all jazzed up because otherwise I'd be like, "Good morning, <laughs> hi Mike." <laughs> well, you know, I I, I woke up at eight thirty because because uh, I got to bed real late last night. But even waking up at eight thirty, it was still like two hour two and a half hours later than I normally wake up. So I mm-hmm. felt like I was sleeping in. Oh, so you got the sleep is what you're saying. Oh. Well, technically no, because I went to bed at four. So. Oh, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> that's not, that's not getting sleep. That's, uh, that's, wow. It was, it was rough waking up this morning. I actually hit the snooze button, which I haven't done in a re- really long time because I can't really figure out how to do it on my phone when I'm out to sleep. <laughs> <clears throat> Anyways, we have... Two. We're, well, we're back to normal, really. We um, are. Uh, we we spent the last two episodes. Some would say covering. Some would say uh, vivisecting <laughs> uh, America versus the Justice Society. I, I think at the end we were tough but fair. You know, it, it occurs to me that I have not looked at our inbox in a while. Have you? No, I. Uh, it has. It's been about a week or two. So, I'm 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 wondering what feedback we will get. I hope that we don't get. A, a flood of emails saying, "Oh, you guys were too hard," or you know, "What's wrong with you?" Because know, that, that remember that happened a few times in the past where we got emails going, "Oh, you guys are so negative." I hope we didn't come across as negative on those, but you know, you you, you got to be honest, or at least I got to be honest that 
when I'm not crazy about something, you know, I'm not crazy about it. You know, I tried to find the positive in it, but, uh, but yeah, that particular storyline just, uh, didn't, it didn't hold up to my childhood memories, unfortunately. I remembered it being a whole lot better than it, than it actually was the second time around, or however many times around that was. Well, it was a nice bit of serendipity that it came out, uh, you know, publishing-wise when it did, because we, we ended... We ended the Infinity Incorporated 10-part opener in the last time we covered Infinity Incorporated. So mm-hmm. we're kind of starting at the dawn of, uh, of the second era of that yeah. series. And even though the last couple of pages started the story we'll be covering in All-Star Squadron, it was pretty much, you know, it was the origin of Starman. So it was pretty much a self-contained story as well. So mm-hmm. everything's kind of, you know, worked out, I think, nicely. Uh-huh. And we've got a couple... Wow, it's two more episodes, dude, and we're going to be in crisis. I can't believe oh, this. <laughs> I'm so excited. Well, that's what kept me up last night, was I actually turned in a little bit early last night, you know, predicting a long day today, because uh, I have multiple recordings going on today, so I'm, I'm a busy, busy podcaster, but... You know, just because I, I have so much on my plate for today, I was like, you know, I need to, I'm kind of run down. I need to turn in, get a good night's sleep. And laid la- down last night, and I began reading the uh, the Crisis on Infinite Earths omnibus recently. And I wanted to fi- finish at least the first issue, because, you know, it's looming large on the horizon and everything. And the next thing I know, it was, I don't know, it was the middle of the night, and I'm up to, uh, I think I'm up to, like, the fifth issue at this point. I'm like, oh, my God, i got to close this thing and go to bed. And then when my wife got up to go to work this morning at 6 a.m., I woke up, you know, she she didn't mean to wake me up, but I woke up and uh, I could not fall back to sleep. So, yeah, I'm (laughs) I'm sleep-deprived myself, but... In an awesome way. I mean, I just, I got sucked right back into the, you know, reading The Crisis again and uh, just love it. Love it. I'm so excited for what, I mean, this is the most excited I've been to, to podcast about something in ages. I'm just so jazzed up for this. It's it's like, this is where my podcasting life has been building to. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's why I'm so glad that we, we got back into this. And, you know, in a weird way, this is going to sound so awful, but but roll with me on this. In a weird way, I'm glad that we've had the, the breaks and hiatuses and the ridiculous, you know, amounts of time that have gone by because it's helped us sync things up to where we are now because mm-hmm. we have this, this amazing, uh, I guess serendipity would be the right word, you know, that, that crisis, when we hit crisis number one in just a couple of weeks... It's we're covering that in the same month that it came out 30 years ago. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I'm seeing crisis stuff everywhere. I'm seeing it all over Facebook. I've seen a couple of news stories about it. Um, There's even some some merch that's out there and stuff. So I'm thinking that this is a great time because the 30th anniversary is on people's minds. Yeah, I think it's going to ramp up more towards April Mm -hmm. uh, because they got that whole convergence thing. And because, right, and, right, and because I think, I think also that people see the April 1985 on the like the the splash page of Crisis Number One, and, mm-hmm. and are like holding that as like okay, this is when we're gonna celebrate the anniversary because it's always screwed up. It's like when they celebrated the 15th anniversary of Death of Superman, it was in September of 
2007. And I'm just like, that doesn't make any sense. That came out in November. But they released the Omnibus and the DVD movie and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just like, this is really strange. Why are they... I mean, it's not even the the cover date. So I, I... I think once we get into, like, April is when a bunch of people are probably going to be, you know, maybe, I'm not saying this for sure, but I can imagine, like, a bunch of shows are going to do specials and retrospectives, and you're going to have essays popping up here and there on blogs, and we're just going to be chugging along doing the whole damn thing. Yep. uh, Well, they're just going to look like also-rans, because we've already (laughs) started, so there you go. Also-rans and, uh, you know... uh, I don't have a joke there. Never mind. Let's go. Moving on. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, it, it's funny you, you talk about that with the dates and everything because I, I don't know if you listened to the, uh, the the year-ending episode that we did for Back to the Bins, but we decided to do a crossover with Two True Freaks proper, and we covered the year 1984. And on Back to the Bins, you know, it's all about comics, so we did the year 1984 in comics. And about a third of the way into the episode, I realized, shit, we're looking at cover dates, not publish you know the actual publishing dates yeah. and so it was all screwy we were actually you know in like march i think talking about books that technically were still in 1983 because they were coming out in like december or something i felt really bad about it but by that point i was like bah screw it we're this far into it let's just roll you know <laughs> <laughs> well you sir have the first synopsis for this episode ah yes i do and i'm really excited about this one I rather liked this one a lot. All right, so we're going to go ahead and we're going to dive straight into this. Oh, by the way, before I was trying to remember what the hell did I want to talk about before we got going. I wanted to give you uh, major kudos because... Uh, I'll take it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> last episode, uh, sound-wise, and I think content-wise as well, but you know, I don't want to sound big-headed, but sound-wise was awesome, dude. Uh, this new thing that we're doing, I think, is working really well. But I just wanted to uh, say thanks because I know it couldn't have been easy to, uh, you know, to do it the way that that we've decided to do it. At least, you know, not initially right out of the gate. I'm sure it wasn't a, a complete cakewalk. So, uh, you know, kudos to you that it really, really sounded great. Well, so I'm I'm loving it. Well, I appreciate that, and I would like to thank the NSA because they're the ones that are just sending me their recordings. <laughs> Uh, of our conversations they're like you know we're really big fans of the show you know we want it to sound better you know we've got the really good equipment so they sent i mean it was just really i mean it was kind of mysterious because because they delivered it in the mail you think they would have emailed that but some dude in a suit showed up on my front door uh and he was all serious but he kept winking and it was kind of hard because he had those sunglasses on so i thought he like was having a stroke but uh no, it was uh no, thank you. I appreciate that. No, it worked out nicely. Um I <laughs> we were talking about this before we were recording and I can actually say that now because of the way we're recording. Um <laughs> whereas before we were recording from the moment we started talking. Um I recently suffered through like a little couple setbacks with the software I normally use. Uh I'm also on DSL internet, which is kind of sketchy as far as Skype is concerned. Uh, apparently, I, I don't know why. I pay a good bit of money a month you'd think the internet would be good but you know whatever so and uh it just turned out really nice it was there was like a a short learning curve uh but once i got into the groove of it and then i kind of talked about it on facebook and a bunch of people were like we've always done that right yeah i'm like okay that's really nice uh never thought of it till now (laughs) thanks for sharing (laughs) 
<laughs> well, that's what I said to because uh, I, I was I was I made another post and a bunch of us were talking about stuff and everyone was like offering like, well, this is what I do. Oh, well, this is what I do, and I really think that we don't, especially in the Two True Freaks uh, community, we really don't do that enough. We really don't talk about nuts and bolts stuff and, and, and how we do this and share tips and tricks and stuff. And I don't know why that is. You would think we would probably talk shop more, but I think most of us are doing 50 shows to begin with. So That's a we, lot of it. When we get together to do shows, it's just like content, content, content. So I, I've had this idea rolling around in my head for months now of doing a nuts and bolts show regarding scoring an episode. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. if you truly want to, and I'm not talking just throw some music under, you know, as a bed. I'm talking like truly score an episode. But the problem is, I know that that's going to be a mammoth project. And who the hell's got the time? You know, mm-hmm. that's the thing is that we're, we're at a point right now where, you know, it's just, hey, got to get a show out, got to get a show out. So, you know, if God forbid, you know, we ever manage to, to get caught up and get a little bit of a, a lead time and everything to where I can work on a, on a labor intensive project like that, then I'm going to make it happen. But yeah, I was actually thinking about that not long ago, that we do need to have uh, more nuts and bolts kind of shows like that, because they seem to be popular, mm-hmm. you know, especially with, with folks that are either just getting into podcasting that are kind of trying to, you know, find their feet or people that are like ah you know i'd like to do it but how do you do it you know kind of thing yeah i mean you know i was in the wilderness uh when i started i i I had some very good people helping me Mm -hmm. uh john putel john butel of uh the unique geek uh podcast and now he's he's really big into the need coffee site uh he gave me a lot of technical information that i needed to know and uh, Jeffrey Bridges, who is uh, the, one of the... Oh, guys. he was awesome in Tron, by the way. Really. <laughs> uh, he was... It's kind of funny. Uh, and I know a guy named Gary Mitchell, too. This is the <laughs> weird thing. Uh, but, um, no, they, uh, you know, J- Jeffrey Bridges basically sh- told me how to use XML coding to do my shows. Because unlike when, when you guys started and we're using Lipson, which kind of does everything for you, for three of my shows I, I kind of do all that stuff myself and I had no idea how to do that so and I was uh, I was listening back because I, I was thinking on a not to cross the streams of another show but it was coming up on episode 200 of views and I thought maybe I would like do like a little montage in the beginning like like you know little snippets from the last 200 episodes and I gave that up after about five minutes because it was driving <laughs> me crazy but I listened to that first episode of views and I'm like holy shit <laughs> I sound like crap. Don't you just want to go back and George Lucas that stuff? Yeah. I know I was I thinking do. that I, I was thinking that views from Longbox Number Zero could use some do bags, <laughs> uh, and 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 I was thinking of adding the Java scene back in, <laughs> uh, but you know I can't get it to look right. So you know. I mean, every time I go back and listen to some ancient episode that I was on when we first got started, I always think, man, I wish I had the original masters to this so bad because <laughs> I would totally remaster it. Well, it's funny because right now I'm talking on a, a blue snowball microphone that I bought a couple years ago. Really great microphone. Really, I've, I've loved it since I've gotten it. And before that, I had a nice Logitech headset. And uh, but <laughs> before that, before my first headset, which was actually an analog headset, uh, and boy, did, did the sound quality on that improve when I went from analog to uh, digital. 
I was using a little $10 stick microphone <laughs> that I bought at work, essentially. And I'd have to sit directly in front of it. And it the peas were popping horribly and all that. And it's just like, wow. And just listening to that, it's just like, I mean, this is not me getting big-headed because, Jesus, there's so much more I could do to make this, to, to make my, you know, to up my game, so to speak. But it's just like, wow. It sounds so much better now than it did back in 2007. Mm-hmm. I'm just I'm just thankful not to have the clunky headset anymore. That was yeah, that, that used to make me nuts. <laughs> you're you're much more militant on that than I am too. So it was crazy. I mean, I would spend like 75 hours editing an episode to get the clunks out of it. It was ridiculous. So yeah, that, <laughs> I'm just happy those days are long behind me. Well. Let's go ahead and we're going to dive into it because we do have rather a mammoth episode staring us in the face here, folks. Uh, that won't really become apparent until we get to the um, crisis, crisis management, management. <laughs> portion of this. But yes, let's go ahead and dive straight in. So this is All-Star Squadron number 42. This is the February 1985 cover dated issue. This was on sale, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, November 22nd, 1984. Original cover price on this book was 75 cents. The cover is by Arvel M. Jones and Rick Magyar. Is that how you pronounce that? Magyar? I Magyar? would assume so. And uh, it depicts uh, a defiant-looking Liberty Bell with her fist clenched, and she's all uh, cut up, her, ta- her costume's all tattered and torn. She is surrounded by uh, three bad guys here. You've got Tsunami kong and sumo the samurai my favorite and uh she's basically standing over the the bodies of her defeated uh colleagues and facing these three alone it's just it's a really uh dynamic uh cover here as they're kind of trying you know it kind of looks like they're charging at her about to take her out it's really nice it says liberty bell stands alone against and it's the three uh that i mentioned bonus the black canary as seen by mike hernandez and terry austin it's a little pinup yeah not a good picture <laughs> i'm glad that i'm glad i'm not the only one to think so tara reed boobs i'm just gonna use she, that as a uh preview yeah well she looks like an old bar whore or something she just looks <laughs> awful no i mean she I'm, I'm sorry but i gotta call it like i see it yeah she looks rough in that picture yeah i mean are your breasts supposed to be halfway down no never mind anyway <laughs> this, this is what happens when the the women of the claremont lounge in atlanta start cosplaying it's just terrible <laughs> there's a joke very few people are gonna get but just to let you folks know who don't know what i'm talking about the claremont lounge in atlanta is where strippers go to die so <laughs> want to put that out there (laughs) old strippers never die they just go to the claremont lounge there you go (laughs) this story is entitled oh say can't you see uh roy thomas is the writer slash editor arvel jones and bill collins are the artists gene d'angelo is the colorist and it occurs to me that i have called her dean d'angelo a number of times on this show (laughs) i don't know why it's gene d'angelo And Cody is the letter on this one. The quote for the issue is, This was a secret war whose battles were lost or won unknown to the public. No such warfare had ever been waged by mortal men. And that's by Winston Churchill in the Wizard War chapter of his World War II memoirs. And again, don't really know what the hell that has to do with the issue, but okay. 
<laughs> That's a nice little um, quote, I guess. The only thing I can think is that uh, because of Dr. Daka's powers and the invisibility and all that, it's unseen. Oh, so. Okay. That's how I connected those dots. It's a stretch, but okay. (laughs) I'll buy that, I guess. It's as good a no prize as any. All right. In the night sky above the Hawaiian Islands, the colorfully clad American hero known as Starman is flying high and carefree when he is nearly cut to pieces by the spinning silvery blades of an Imperial Japanese aircraft. Zipping out of the way in the nick of time, thanks to his wondrous gravity rod, Starman realizes that there are actually two planes, bombers by the looks of them, and so he lights into them with his stellar powers, intent on stopping a second bombing of Pearl Harbor. He quickly takes out the first plane, but the second is able to dump its payload above the unsuspecting city of Honolulu. However, Starman's gravity rod is able to deflect the bombs to where they harmlessly explode against a distant mountain. Starman realizes that the planes were actually testing a sort of cloaking device, and it was only when they accidentally passed in close proximity to him that his gravity rod made them visible. He pursues the second plane, but before he can act against it, a man inside, Prince Daka, re-energizes the cloak and it gives off waves of force that not only render it invisible once again, but it also knocks Starman silly. Just before lapsing into unconsciousness, Starman sets his rod to carry him out of danger. This, of course, leads directly into the framing sequence we saw for last issue's origin of Starman. Later, in New York City, Prince Daka meets with three agents that he has summoned to aid him in securing certain quote-unquote Yankee superweapons before the American mystery men can use them against Japan. The agents are Kung, uh, the assassin of a thousand claws, Sumo the samurai, whom we met in Superman vs. Wonder Woman a while back, and Tsunami. Now, by the way, that uh, Superman vs. Wonder Woman story, that's in uh, Sumo's future. So even though we've met him already, that story hasn't happened in this timeline yet. Uh-huh. Uh, the Super Weapons, Starman's Gravity Rod, Green Lantern's Ring, and any other quote-unquote prizes of war which happen to fall into their hands. But where will the agents find these mystery men and their objects of power? They themselves have foolishly shown us, says Prince Daka, by allowing the very location of their base of operations to be identified on the cover of one of their national magazines. And he presents them with a copy of Time magazine with a cover showcasing the All-Star Squadron's fortress in Flushing Meadow. I bet that's worth a fortune now. (laughs) I wish that existed in the real world because I would love to have a copy of it. In said, quote-unquote, fortress... A revived Starman has given his story to his teammates who find invisible planes a bit hard to swallow until one of them points out that, Hello! Hello! Wonder Woman, doesn't she have an invisible plane? Thank you very much. Starman tries to convince the All-Stars of the threat of these invisible bombers, but to little avail, it seems as half the heroes present decide it's time to cut out. GL goes back to his army base. Johnny Quick uh, goes back to see all tells all news. And our man has to get back to Bannerman Chemical, but not before arranging a date with Firebrand, much to Tarantula's chagrin. Oh, and uh, Hawkman departs too after again welcoming new recruit Amazing Man to the team. 
Outside, Daka and his agents watch them depart the HQ and decide that the time to strike is now. Inside the Perisphere, Firebrand, Starman, Tarantula, and Amazing Man discuss the bombers further and use a fancy tracking gizmo to see which all-stars may be available elsewhere to assist in acting as lookouts against possible attacks, but find only uh, the Guardian, the Manhunter, and Sandy and, uh, or excuse me, Sandman and Sandy, uh, none of which have the needed skills to serve their needs in this instance. Amazing Man wants to know why Starman is so convinced that the planes are present in or coming to America, but Starman can only answer that it's a crazy hunch, which leads to a heated exchange between the two regarding prejudice and immigration laws. Firebrand and Tarantula are able to talk them down, though. In an upper level of the sphere, Robot Man and Liberty Bell, who have been observing this conversation, are suddenly attacked by an unseen assailant who dismembers Robot Man. Liberty Bell calls for assistance and the others come running, but Firebrand is, is instantly taken out by a batok to the head. Starman charges in, but is mauled by a disembodied, uh, <laughs> by disembodied gorilla hands, which I thought was pretty funny. Tarantula, uh, Tarantula and Amazing Man, I almost called him Tarantula Man, which is actually a kind of cool name. Tarantula and Amazing Man and Liberty Bell find themselves alone against their suddenly visible foes. The three agents of Prince Daka. At first, our heroes seem to have the situation well in hand as Tarantula web swings around the, war, uh, around the room, taking out Kong, uh, Amazing Man Dex Sumo, and Liberty Bell tussles with Tsunami. But the situation quickly changes when Kung, in gorilla form, thrashes Tarantula, then Sumo and uh, Tsunami stretch Amazing Man in his rubberized form well beyond his pliability limits. Cornered and facing all three alone, Liberty Bell, squeezed by Kung in the form of a giant python, attempts to smash the gravity rod against a far wall in order to keep it out of enemy hands. But it stops in midair, having been snagged by unseen hands. Prince Daka slowly fades into view. He has his prize, and he orders his agents to kill them. Kill them all. Next issue, Revenge of the Rising Sun. Which is a <laughs> follow-up to the hit song uh, House of the Rising Sun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where the uh, young lad that uh, wasted uh, so much of his time there actually goes and burns the place down. It's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of a dark song. but uh... Alrighty. You, are, uh, you are in a, 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 a sinister mood this morning, my friend. <laughs> I just hate humanity at the moment. So... Uh... <laughs> Um, I, no. I understand well. This this comes from the retail life. I understand. <laughs> Notes on this bad boy, courtesy of the All-Star Companion. The character Daka is b- called both Dr. Daka and Prince Daka in the 1943 Batman serial. Uh, one of Daka's Japanese henchmen in number 42 states, We have failed thus far to interest many American-born sons of Japan in serving our sacred cause a way of underscoring the basic loyalty of most of the Nisei and the basic injustice of the U.S. and uh, relocation centers. Tarantula is less than happy when our man asks Firebrand for a date before he gets around to it. Maybe that's why they call him the Man of the Hour, quips. Why am I doing uh, Billy D. Williams as Robot Man? <laughs> 
Hello, what have we here? That'd be an interesting casting choice. <laughs> you truly belong with us amongst here in the Parisphere. Um, <laughs> Liberty Bell unveils a new device in the Parisphere, which enables them to home in on the whereabouts of any all-star, all-stars currently in the New York, New Jersey area. This, this note makes me laugh. Uh, the issue contains a sexy new pinup of post-World War II JSA or Black Canary by Mike Hernandez, a.k.a. Michael Bear. I didn't know that. And, uh, I didn't know that either. That's cool. And Terry Austin. Because uh, his art... W- I guess this is really early in his career, so maybe we shouldn't be too hard on him. Uh, I like Michael Bear a lot. As a matter of fact, the uh, the only piece of original art that I own is uh, is Michael Bear. Roy T. planned to introduce a pre-Black Canary Diana Drake as a mysterious teenage heroine called either Mockingbird or Blackbird, but never got around to it. Number 42's letter page contains small reproductions of the covers of three other JSA-related RT-scripted titles on sale. Infinity Incorporated, the second issue of the limited series America vs. the Justice Society, and Johnny Thunder, a.k.a. Thunderbolt, which introduces the Earth-1 equivalent of Johnny Thunder. And now there, there's a couple other little, like, picture notes, uh, but these actually are more, like, information than talking about the picture itself. Doctor, a.k.a. Prince Daka... And Tsunami plot their own sneak attack in number 42, juxtaposed with a photo of J. Carol Naish, or Nash, or however you pronounce that, portraying Daka in the 1943 Batman movie serial from Columbia. For a photo of Nash's Daka, see volume 1 of this series. Of Irish descent, Nash apparently played characters, often villains, of virtually every nationality but Irish. And Sumo, a samurai, meets Baron Blitzkrieg and Zwerg, in his first comic book appearance of the pages of all new collector's edition volume 7 number c54 the script by jerry conway and art by jose luis garcia lopez praise be his name and dan adkins this 72 page tabloid sized tale billed on the cover as superman versus wonder woman took place in june of 1942 three months after the events of this issue hmm i thought that was in 1943 but okay i can roll with it <laughs> So what do you got on made, this one? I thought we made a big deal about that story taking place in 43. That's the only reason that sticks in my mind. Uh, oh, my goodness. Uh, notes on this one. Let's see what we got. Um, I got to be honest, I don't really care for the cover on this one. It's it's a little busy. It's a little awkwardly staged. I like the idea, but it just it looks a little funny. Um, and I think the coloring has something to do with it, too. But, uh, yeah. Inside, though, I love the art. Uh, I think Jones and Collins are a great team on this. Um, I'm not sure about either of them, like where this was in their career. This one seems a little more fluid than, uh, like like next issue, I, I noticed that the art was a little stiff in places. And this one has a little bit of that here and there, but overall... Uh, I really like the art in this mm-hmm. particular that, issue. That was basically kind of my notes on the art too. Is that it's it's like good, except there's just like little places, and I'll get in when I get into my specific stuff. There's like little places here and there where you're like, huh, that's not okay, right? <laughs> I dig the Starman sequence in the beginning of this book. I mean, I dig it a lot. You know, it's stuff like this and that Our Man sequel that we were looking, or sequence rather, that we were looking at in Annual Number Three that makes me regret that we never got ongoing titles of some of these guys because I think this is just fantastic. I, 
have always had a soft spot for Starman, but he looks especially cool in this sequence. I, mm-hmm. I love, you know, the costume and just the, you know, the whole power set and everything is just, it, it's interesting to me. I love this. And he just has such a unique look. I mean, he, he, his look to me actually says 40s in, in a way that some of the other characters don't necessarily. But I, I love this opening sequence. I, I like seeing him kind of the, the center of attention, however, briefly here. Uh, page five uh, in particular, I, I just think it's incredible. Uh, I love that last panel of Starman is actually unconscious and he's being essentially dragged through the air much like uh, Mjolnir will drag Thor around. You know, Thor doesn't actually fly. It's the hammer that does the flying. It's the same kind of thing here. The the gravity rod is pulling Starman through the air as he's actually unconscious and dragging him toward uh, Flushing Meadow and the uh, the Perisphere and Trilon in the distance. I just think that's really cool. Uh, Sumo. I thought it was cool seeing Sumo again. He's so friggin' ridiculous. <laughs> and, you know, we made so much fun of him in Superman versus Wonder Woman. But at the same rate, it's an interesting idea. It's just, you know, with modern sensibilities, you know, in hindsight and all, he just comes across as such a racist stereotype. But it's it's still, I mean, he's still an interesting idea for for a character. He He's kind of like the, uh, he's kind of like the Japanese megalith or something where he's he's attained this connection between mind and body or whatever and he's supposed to be like the ultimate you know embodiment of of you know the the martial arts or whatever i just i I do think he's a cool character he's just he's a little silly at the same rate just in the way that uh that he's portrayed i love the ad here uh, across from page what page is this page 10 the uh, star trek 3 combat game that's just a cool classic ad i love the art in the ad what kind of game was that a what kind of game was that I think that must have been uh, like a like a role playing, you know, like a board game type of thing. Yeah, because it says it has dice, huh, yeah, dice and colorful kind. I, I don't think I've ever actually seen the game, but I know I've seen this ad a number of times. Uh, I love page ten with uh, again, you know, the JSA on the cover of Time magazine. Great shot uh, on the second panel, page ten of again the Perisphere and Trilon. And I just never get tired of seeing that. I think it's really cool uh let's see page 11 oh yeah page 11 panel three now i think we've said this before but again it bears repeating asking this question how in the hell does alan scott go into the service and he's a mere sergeant and no i'm, I'm sorry he's a mere first uh, private first class rather and doiby dickles doiby friggin dickles is his sergeant how, do, how does that happen I thought he was, I thought Doyle Oh, was maybe that. Oh, maybe that's it. Me. Yeah. See, I think we've discussed this before because I think I think that was the answer you gave before. Now that I think about it, yeah, that he was a veteran of like World War One or something like that. Yeah, I'm. Yeah. I'm actually re-listening to because uh, it's it, what I realized is that in addition to Flash being 75 year old this year and Robin and Joker, the JSA itself, Green Lantern's 75 this year. Wow. And the uh, I've been re-listening to the graphic audio production of the Sleepers Volume Two, which was basically which was a series of novels uh, that came out a couple years ago. Yeah, yeah, I have that book. I mean, the you know the actual novel. I, I've never read it though, but yeah, I, I forgot it, that there was a graphic audio of that. And it's basically a golden age story. It's the origin of Alan Scott, 
I need and to give that a listen to. Who who does the the uh, voice of Green Lantern in that? Anybody? I, I forget his. Well, it's it's the graphic audio crew. So uh, right. I, I forget that he does a great job. Um, but he, uh, but so that they they kind of talk about they kind of gloss over Doyby Dickles in that story. But uh, but I think that might be the you know I haven't gotten to the point where he's in the service because uh, he does join up in that in that uh, book. But he I. I I think that's might be where I got the idea that Doiby was in the military before and just rejoined and was able to attain it. Or it could be, I read, I don't know. It makes sense though. I mean, yeah. it does make sense that, you know, he fought in world war one as a younger man. And, and now, you know, there's another war. So, you know, they, they reactivate his reserve status or whatever, you know, I'm not sure how exactly worked back then, but that's not too much of a stretch. I don't think. I didn't have a note about this originally, but just looking at the art here, it occurs to me uh, on page 11, uh, I hope there's a hole in the ceiling there at the bottom where Johnny Quick's just kind of <laughs> flying up, and otherwise he's just going to smack into the top of the perisphere. Johnny, oh God, he did it again. <laughs> he's just a stain against the upper wall. Uh, you know, it, it just, it bears pointing out, and I know I've said this before, but I, I love where we're at in this era of all-star squadron, because this is the squadron, the way I remember them, you know, around in the perisphere, you know, talking and having these personal interactions, but also even occasionally uh, facing off bad guys that would come a calling. I just, this is really my era of, of all-star. This is about the time that uh, as a kid, I discovered it, you know, on the stands and started buying the issues as I could find them. Cause I, unfortunately, I, you know, they didn't always carry every single issue on the newsstand where I would buy it from. So I, you know, I had to pick it up, you know, here and there as I could get them. So I had missed the earliest issues, you know, the earliest stuff we've covered on this show. Uh, a lot of those issues I collected as back issues, you know, years later, years and le- years later, cause it used to be really hard to find these in the days before, you know, uh, uh, eBay and things like that, and you know, the pro- proliferation of comic shops when I was a kid. But this stuff here, um, I bought you know right off the stands. This very issue, I'm pretty sure I bought right off the stands. So this this was just a nice walk down memory lane. I really like this. Anyway, back to the specific notes. Uh, page thirteen, last panel. This this sounds a lot like beepers. I, I, as a matter yeah. of fact, she even says beepers. She says. Uh, you know, this is Liberty Bell looking to see what other uh, All-Star members might be available. And she says, uh, looks like only three All-Stars between here and Hoboken have their beepers on tonight. That just kind of struck me as strange. But then on the other hand, it's kind of nice to see advanced tech in the face of what we see, like some of the villains, for example, come up with. You know, so on the one hand, it, it seems kind of anachronistic. But on the other hand, it's like, well, you know... They live in a more fantastic world than than our real world, so why not? I guess. <laughs> uh, page fourteen. Uh, my note is just simply, "Oh, not this shit again," and I'm gonna just leave it there. <laughs> um, I still say, speaking of anachronistic, that uh, Tarantula's outfit feels anachronistic to me. It just doesn't feel like a 1940s superhero outfit. It feels very well. It feels like what it is. It feels very 80s to me. Uh, jumping ahead here, page 19, 19, last panel. Oh yeah. I don't know why I waited all this time to uh, point it out. I guess because this is the, the, 
the point where it gets ripped off, but I like Liberty Bell wearing her red cape. It's just not, no, it's odd that my note is there because that's the panel where the cape is actually ripped off of her by Tsunami. Uh, let's see, last page. And I think I have this very same note for the next issue as well. Where the hell is all this water coming from? <laughs> I mean, there's like this torrent of water flooding the perisphere. And I'm like, you know, okay, I get like maybe a water main got broken, but come on. I mean, this is like a ton of, it's, it's almost like they're underwater. You know, like the perisphere was a sub, for example, and got a, a hole got knocked in the side of it, and now it's flooding. I mean, there's that much water gushing in from the side of the thing. It's just really weird. And my very last note, what an ugly pinup. <laughs> That's guess, the, uh, the Black what is, Canary. What is, you know, I don't like to, fo- you know, to, to seem sexist or like I'm focusing on something, but what is up with her boobs? I mean, yeah. seriously, they're separate from her. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really not. You know, if if there was a way to go in and like fix that, you know, Photoshop surgeries for that now. (laughs) Yes, but you know, I mean, you know, art artistically, if if there was a way to go in, it's actually not. I mean, it's not that bad of a drawing. She looks gaunt and scrawny and like i say she she looks like kind of an old used up bar floozy she just you know she should have a, a cigarette in one hand you know but i once had a drink with jack kennedy <laughs> yeah it's 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 not good but that coupled with her bizarre boobs and and the way her uh the upper part of her costume is all V'd out and every, it just, yeah, not good. Yeah. Sorry guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I had no idea that Mike Hernandez was Mike bear. I, I did not know that before. I love when we learn things that I've read before. <laughs> uh, my notes, uh, the cover, I, I like the cover. It's a very solid cover. Uh, but I don't know. Liberty bell looks a little off. There, there's something about her legs and arms that just look like they're not in proportion to the rest of the body. But it's action-packed. It's dynamic. Um, I, I, I'm really glad that uh, Starman's unconscious because he'd be looking right up Sumo's uh, <laughs> little skirt thingy there. And uh, I'm going to say it a bunch in the next couple episodes. I hate Kung. I hate this character. I think he's stupid, <laughs> yes. and I'm really, really. Oh God, I just freaking hate him. Uh, I, I, I was, I was like you. Uh, pages one through five. I loved that one that the narrator is the bad guy. So we're right. seeing the perspe- the the uh, the whole scene from Daka's perspective. Apparently, made for a, a very engaging opening. And like you, I love the art. Except like like on page three, one of those Japanese pilots has a dirt look on his face. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and it's just like I thought we weren't drawing them like that anymore. I thought you know we all came to a consensus that that's kind of offensive. So <laughs> uh, the um, the cosmic rod seems to kind of the proportions of it seem to vary throughout the issue as well. So uh, sometimes it gets a little excited, you know. <laughs> uh, pages seven through eight, uh, seven and eight, uh, with the, you know this like two page spread of all the origins and reminding us of who the villain is and everything. I really like this. It's a dynamic way to kind of bring the reader up to speed, uh, like new readers especially, and then remind old readers that, um, that you know what what you know who these people are. So because 
like not everybody might have read the you know all new collector's edition c54 right they might not know who i mean tsunami is in this title kung is in this title but like you said newsstand distribution being spotty back in the 80s maybe they missed it so Mm -hmm. i uh i I had a thought uh because somebody was talking uh on facebook a little while ago of you know who to bring in uh to the flash tv series the the current one like because they seem to be in their casting they seem to be being kind of meta like you know you have john wesley ship playing his dad uh, you know, Amanda Pays came in and played Tina McGee. And two of the the guys playing Captain Cold and Heatwave were in Prison Break, that show from Fox together. And I thought that if you were really going to do something weird, you would have Patrick Duffy come in and play an older Neptune Perkins. Since that was... would be cool. So... <laughs> if they did that, I'd start watching that show. That would be <laughs> that would be cool. I would like that. So That would be pretty neat. Uh, page 11. God, I jumped ahead a little bit. I, I didn't realize that. I like this moment between Johnny and Liberty Bell where he's saying goodbye and basically just isn't having any of her, we need to talk about this shit. He's just going to kiss her and leave. So, <laughs> um, and, uh, our man's just like, and then deep down, I'm betting Libby Lawrence wouldn't want him any other way. And you seem to really like the look at his face. He's really, he's thinking about something else. It's, kind of, <laughs> uh, page 12. Well, our man is not letting his drug addiction and being held on Earth X get between him and a little Danette Riley. Wow, he's I like he's smooth, dude. I love it. I love it. <laughs> it's great. And yeah, Johnny Law, you suck. So actually I like the tarantula. I just I'm just wondering why these people are being so free with their private lives with an author who has said, I'm gonna write a book about all this someday. I guess maybe right. they just don't care. Uh page fourteen. I had forgotten that Roy Thomas had Starman playing the role of the prejudiced hero this far back. Because he does that in Young All-Stars. Because there's an exchange in, like, the early issues of that series between Starman and Sandy the Golden Boy. But I had forgot that they played him that way uh, this early into, uh, or I guess it's not really early into the series, but... And why is... (sighs) I does it is it me or is like Danette Riley on this page a little like she's kind of thrusting her tits out in every picture she's in. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. I, I don't quite know how to say it. It's like she's lounging on the table. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, I mean, she's supposed to be this this debutante and everything. I mean, we've never really seen her portrayed quite this way till now, but I I guess possibly she's I mean, she seems kind of over-sexualized, but at the same rate, maybe maybe this is kind of her true nature, that, you know, being a, a hot redhead debutante, that she is kind of... Uh, flirty and all that. Flirty, yeah, that's a, that's a more kind term than I was going to use. Flirty works, yes. <laughs> uh, pages 15 and 16, I love the start of this fight where Robot Man just basically sliced to pieces and they can't see what's going on. It's It's just so dynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and page 17, hate Kung, hate Kung, hate Kung. Uh, I hate having to save his name. Oh, God, he sucks. He's I like wish the... he was called Dung. That would be a much better name for him. He, he's, he's like the Johnny Thunder of bad guys in this. Oh, but across from page 17, opened at last the sealed book of Superman's past. 
Superman the Secret Years. I have mixed I, feelings on that series. <laughs> I really need to uh, to give that a proper read one of these days. I remember when it was coming out, I may even have all the issues, but I know I have not read the entire thing. I think I read the first issue and was kind of unimpressed. But I need to I need to go back and, and actually give it a, a fair shake one of these days. Uh, page 19. Uh, I don't know why I have the sudden desire to ring this bell. Really? <laughs> Really? <laughs> you know, I am all for willing suspension of disbelief, but that's pushing it. Though, wow, she really punches Tsunami in the face. Wait a minute, his name's Tom... I guess, yeah, I yeah guess his we name's have seen Tom that Revere. Yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, yeah, okay. Damn you, 40s. Uh, page 21, that snake just looks damn... It looks like the snake from uh, Dreamscape. It also looks like the one, the the big, obviously fake mechanical one that Kong fights in Kong 76, too. <laughs> uh, page 22, really solid ending, but is it me or does it look like the camera is backed up too far? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the only way I can describe it. I know I know this is this is artwork and not movies, and you and, uh, and you can't really, you know, one doesn't really translate to the other but it's just so far back like it loses a lot of detail Mm -hmm. like the the five panels of daka you know becoming visible again are really awesome but it's just like it's almost like you kill them honorable friends (laughs) could you come a little closer daka because it'd be really great oh i'm sorry kill them honorable friends kill them all (laughs) So, no, I, 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 I greatly enjoyed this issue. You, you, had, uh, you had messaged me when we were getting ready to record the second part of the America versus the JSA uh, story. And it's just like, fear not, you know, things get really cool in All-Star Squadron. And it's been like a good, you know, 14 years since I've read these issues. So I was just like, wow, we're, uh, I thought things kind of started going down in the 40s and the 50s of this title. But this is... Uh, this is really this is dynamic. It's really picking up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just I just enjoyed the crap out of this issue. Me too. No, I, I did. I really thought this was a solid issue, and it's funny because I didn't expect to. Because strictly judging a book by its cover and not remembering this particular storyline, I saw the cover, which I, you know I got to be honest, I just I'm not really impressed by the cover. But I saw the cover. I saw who the bad guys were, and I thought, oh god. You know, because I don't like Kung either. And Tsunami, man, eh, never one of my favorites. And Sumo is just flat ridiculous. So I just, I saw this cover and I thought, eh, this is going to be a slog. But then one of the things that really helped win me over was that awesome setup sequence with Starman. Because it's just, it's it's his chance to shine. And I think he looks fantastic in that sequence. So that really helped. But it, it is, it's a, it's a, it's a, actually a really strong story. And I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. Very awesome. I like where the I like where this one goes from here. Yeah, I do too. It's uh, it, it's a fantastic, uh, like, it's nice that leading into crisis, All Star isn't suffering. Right. Because yeah. I I really think leading up to like issue fifty, things are really kind of clicking and running on all you know all eight cylinders, uh, with this title. So. I hope so, because that's the way I remember it, so I, I hope <laughs> that that bears out. But no, seriously, I mean, one of the things that, that helped get me into 
um, All Star and, and definitely kept me buying All Star was the fact that it uh, crossed over heavily into Crisis, and obviously, Crisis uh, was affecting and was going to greatly affect that book. So that's that's definitely one of the things that uh, you know that that made me interested in that title and, and kept me buying it was the fact that. You know, I, I love the crisis and you were getting that much. I mean, as you know, this is going to be interesting to discover as we get more into this. But as I recall, it seemed like All Star was the one that was most directly tied to crisis, if you know what I mean. I mean, sure, there were tons of other crossovers and everything, but it seemed like on a consistent story level basis that. It, it tied most directly in, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, uh, you know, as I said, that was, the, that was the universe, that was the world that was going to be most affected by it, so that just seems to make sense. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I think now would be a good time to, to take a break and play some promos and uh, come back to talk about the 11th issue of Infinity Incorporated. Play it. And now it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Illogic. Foolish emotions. A constant irritant. And transpire out freak! Two! on the circus <laughs> right next to the dog-faced boy True! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubblegum oh, oh. it's a super prize package worth $9,388. This isn't the biggest bag over the head. Punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! Ow! Go and now, together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts, Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer for Christ's sake. Yeah, goddamn lucky he didn't kill him. And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. So you're looking at me? Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now come on, let's go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! TrueFreaks.com Superman Captain Marvel Batman It is 1985 Robin of Earth 2 Sergeant Rock the Legion of Superheroes. This is the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tomorrow. Jonah Hex. Commandy. It will one day be called the greatest comic book event of all time. Swamp Thing. Wonder Woman. 
The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Arion. The Metal Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear Man. The Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Syndicate. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents... And many, many more. Crisis on Infinite Earths. The DC Universe will never be the same. Coming January only at twotruefreaks.com. Hello and welcome back to the Tales of the Justice Society of America. And so for this portion of the show, we're going to jump ahead in time roughly 40 years or so to Infinity Incorporated. And it's all you, Mike. Well, revealed at last, the secret behind Infinity's origin, except not really. (laughs) It's written on the cover. It's not really in the book. Uh, Story title for this uh, comic, which was $1.25, 50 cents more than uh, All-Star Squadron. So basically... Both of them together would cost you two bi- two bucks, which now barely gets you a meal at McDonald's. Uh, <laughs> you can buy half a comic for that these days. Th- thanks to Mike's amazing world of <laughs> comics, we've, we know that this was released on November 15th, 1984. Roy Thomas, writer-editor, Don Newton and George Tusca, pencilers on different pages. Tony DiZaniga and Mike Macklin, inkers on different pages. Uh, Dan Thomas, co-plotter, A- Adrian Roy, uh, and Anthony Tallinn, colorists, John Clark and Cody letterers. The quote for this, uh, this issue is, everybody knows everybody is dying. That's why people are as good as they are, from the film Bang the Drum Slowly. That's very interesting, giving the conversation that they're never going to hear that you and I had in the break. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, folks. Private joke. (laughs) We open on the members of Infinity Incorporated and the Justice Society somberly watching the body of Brainwave being loaded into an ambulance. Once, he was a villain. Now, he is the man man that quite possibly saved the world. Dr. Midnight tries to comfort Brainwave Jr., who is appreciative, if not receptive. Hawkman apologizes to his son and promises that they will never lose each other again. Hector even warms up to Norda, though I really don't know why. Wonder Woman tells her daughter that she is going to get Steve Trevor the medical help he needs after she, you know, accidentally, you know, dropped a wall on him. And vows if he can't be healed, Fury will never see her again. Superman is a bit morose about what happened, but Power Girl insists that the people of Metropolis will forgive him. Out of nowhere, Superman starts to wonder if the Earth was ever his real home, or can it be his real home, despite the fact that he's freaking married! But, you know, whatever. Jade and Obsidian press Green Lantern on the whole he's probably their dad thing. And Green Lantern is open to exploring the possibility. Just not now. You know, there, there, there are things. Yeah, yeah, things. Things he's got to do. And he's, he's got to leave. And suddenly, <laughs> Maury Povich walks out and announces that the <laughs> tests are in. And Alan Scott is definitely their father. <laughs> okay, that doesn't happen at all. Actually, he's pretty cool about talking about it. But just not now. 
but he doesn't include Obsidian's name in a sentence, so Obsidian gets all moody about that. Meanwhile, the Atom tells Albert Rothstein that he has to tell his mom about the whole Nuclon thing and adds that, that this adventure, with this adventure under their belts, the kids are shoe-ins for JSA membership. High above the scene, the Star Spangled Kid privately muses that how his pipe dream of a new superhero team may be sunk. He can't blame the kids. Being Justice Society members was all they wanted, and up until a few weeks ago, Sylvester felt the same way. Apparently, at the funeral for the Crimson Avenger, who died in the line of duty saving the life of a small boy, was a rather depressing affair, as one might imagine. The Seven Soldiers of Victory, now more like Five Soldiers of Victory, considering Green Arrow, Speedy, the Vigilante, the Shining Knight, and the Star-Spangled Kid are all that's left of the team, reunited to honor their friend. But it turned into Hero being annoyingly cynical to fellow Hero, and the kid wigging out when someone asks about Stripesy. After the, after the services, the heroes go their separate way, but the mention of Stripesy, the kid's adult partner from the 40s, sparks that maybe he may want to reunite with his old friend. Thinking that he can get that particular band back together, Sylvester drives out to Las Vegas to visit his ex-partner and see if there's any possibility that they could be a duo again. The reunion is anything but pleasant. Despite getting along with Pat Dugan's kid, Dugan himself, Dugan himself is openly hostile to his former partner and pretty much tells him to get the hell out. Pemberton nearly leaves, but by chance he spots a mysterious limo driving up to Dugan's sewer station, which sets his cosmic belt sense off or something. Investigating further, i.e. not leaving, Sylvester recognizes the men that get out of the car and realizes that the man in the darkened limo is none other than Boss Weed, infamous gangster. Pemberton. God, that's a hard name to say. Jerry Siegel, why the hell did you name him this? (laughs) <laughs> Pemberton tries his, tries his best to take the men out, but is overconfident and is taken out rather easily. The Saturday Night Fever-inspired gangsters realize who Sylvester is by taking <laughs> his clothes off. Dude, one dude is wearing, like, the serious John Travolta suit. in, <laughs> uh, And are now ready to kill him, but Pat Dugan puts a stop to that right quick. Weed agrees, and they show Pemberton... Uh, they stow... P- See, Pemberton is a hard name. Weed agrees, and they stow Pemberton away until they can figure out what to do with him. For now, they have business to conduct. That business is an armored sedan that Dugan has created for the gangster. To make matters worse, Weed kidnaps Dugan's son and takes him on the Vegas criminal spree he has planned. Weed and his men leave, and Dugan is, as you would imagine, pretty bummed about this. Pemberton tells him to get a grip and untie him so they can take out the bad guys. So let, let, let me let me reiterate that that sentence, folks. Uh, the bad guys tied up the superhero, and then left the superhero and the former superhero behind. One of them not tied up. The, 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 these are terrible criminals. I just I just want to put that out there right right now. Uh, Dugan lashes out. We find out that the reason Dugan hates Pemberton is that he believes that his former partner stole some of his patents. Pat was unaware that it was Sylvester's black sheep cousin that was behind all of that, and after having one of the fastest changes of heart since Anakin went to the dark side in the movie version of Episode 3, that's a joke, folks, promise, they they take off to stop Weed and save Dugan's son. After a quick change of clothes, Dugan puts on his old stripesy outfit, they climb into the original Star Rocket Racer and head to Vegas. They take the racer to the Pawn Star guys... And they try to sell the car to Rick. 
Rick is pretty interested. And the old man is all kind of starstruck to be dealing with two of his boyhood heroes. But ultimately, Dugan wanted too much money, and Rick didn't think he could move the car fast enough because the seven soldiers of victory just aren't moving memorabilia like they used to. No, I wasn't watching Pawn Stars while eating dinner before I typed this up. I swear to God. Actually, either that joke's falling flat or you're muted, so... I'm sorry, no wonder you didn't respond to what I said before. Because <laughs> you, you dropped the Anakin joke and I said, you hating bastard, but you, you just forged on because I was muted. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Actually, they chase down the armored car after it crashes through a casino, but are forced to crash the original Star Rocket. All of the gangsters pile out of the car to fight the heroes, but Dugan's son, who can drive despite being like six or something, gets away with the car, allowing the star-spangled kid in Stripesy to beat the holy hell out of the gang. After the dust is settled and the cops are called, Sylvester promises that Dugan won't be held accountable for building a nigh-unstoppable car that trashed a casino. Sylvester and Pat part as friends. And we are brought back to the present where the kid is surprised to learn that his Infinity Incorporated teammates want to stick with the team. The world will have to be big enough for the Justice Society and Infinity Incorporated. Northwind talks about how this is a day of tragedy is turning around, and just because everyone hates him, the Star Spangled Kid gets all weird and says that, in a way, Infinity Incorporated is the legacy of the original brainwave. And he prays they are worthy of the sacrifice. What? <laughs> okay. Um, unfortunately, Mike, I still don't have okay. me a copy. Somewhere in the world, there are podcasters who do not have a fourth edition of the All-Star Companion. Won't you give generously? And <laughs> Anyway, <clears throat> I don't have a copy of that book yet. All righty, I got it right. I, I just so happened to have it right here. So if I could turn to the freaking page, it would be better. <laughs> That's always better, yes. I'm sorry, I will have to correct that oversight soon. I've been watching that damn thing on eBay forever and a day, and every once in a while it dips low, but it's just not dipping low enough. You know what I mean? Uh, actually, I know exactly what you mean. Um, you know, it's funny, folks. We 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 talk um, we we talk about these companions and. You know, we read the notes and all that stuff, but they also have synopsis and stuff, which we don't use because we prefer to write our own. But they they kind of to save space, they like boil everybody's names down to uh, to uh, initials. So if you didn't know who they were, they were are, you'd be confused <laughs> right. by starring B W F Y H U J A N U N W O B P G S C and S S. Fork you too. <laughs> so boy, fi who ja So <laughs> there are only two notes in this issue. Wow. Yeah, there's not a whole lot on it. Wow. Roy Thomas didn't like it any much more than I did. <laughs> uh, the JSA and Infinity Incorporated storylines continue in the four-issue limited series America versus the Justice Society. Pat Dugan, Stripesy, was cheated out of his patent rights by Arthur Pemberton, Sylvester's nephew and leader of the subversive strike force, as seen in the 1970s All-Star Comics 7071 during the period where Arthur controlled the Pemberton estate, leaving Pat nothing but the star rocket racer itself. Oh, there's a couple more here. This page is laid out weird. 
For reasons not explained or recalled at this late date, Tony DiZaniga, rather than Alfredo Alcala, inked the Don Newton penciled framing sequence in this issue. That's okay. The letters pages carried the sad announcement that Don Newton, having dra- drawn the upcoming Infinity Incorporated number 13 out of sequence, and the framing pages for 11 and the first three pages of number 12, had died of a heart attack at age 49 on August 15, 1984. As per the letter pages, Jerry Ordway stepped in at the last moment and drew the cover of number 11 from a design by Don and Head Hannigan, and I kind of wish he would have designed it, because it's not... His art's fine, it's just not a very good cover. (laughs) So, what do you got on this bad boy? Ooh, alright, um... It's funny because I I, ra- I rather like the cover on this one. Actually, I just think the proportions was... of the Star Spangled Kid in relation to the other characters. He looks fat. Well, yeah, he does look beefy, but also he's like giant man Star Spangled <laughs> Kid. I don't know why he's so much larger. It almost looks like they're exploding out of his chest or something. It's really kind of oh awkward. Oh my god! I just ate Moe's. Oh god! <laughs> <laughs> Um, revealed at last, uh, where? Because it's not in this issue. Okay, good, because I thought maybe I missed something. No. <laughs> this is like, this is like, you know, the things we notice on the covers, like, like you know, them leaving off dialogue of the Spectre talking on the cover. Right. Of the it's just like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Set free the justice, uh, screw it, just die. Yeah, that was a, that was a messed up cover. Um... All I can guess, you know, damn, I, w- I wish there was more notes in that book because I was really hoping that you would clear up a mystery for me is, um, okay, so we've got Don Newton and Tony DiZaniga do the first three pages, which you know, I'm not going to, I'm unapologetic in my love for Tony DiZaniga. I love the framing sequence in this. Well, actually, it's not, well, yeah, it is a framing sequence. They come back in pages 23 and 24. So yes, it is a framing se- sequence by... Newton and Disney, love it, love it, love it. I th- I think it's beautiful. I think they make a hell of a team, and I'm so glad it was not Alfredo Alcala. With all apologies <laughs> to Alfredo Alcala, but then from pages four through twenty-two, you got this shitty-looking story by uh, George Tusca and Mike Lacklin. I thought for sure that one of the notes you were going to read was that this was rescued from the inventory drawer. Because that's what it feels like. It feels like, oh, by the way, we got this story. Let's just throw that Because this, you know, as you pointed out, this is when Newton had just passed away. So I thought they were maybe desperate to get an issue out. So they wrapped this framing sequence around uh, this deal with Star Spangled Kid. Because it really feels like an inventory story. But apparently not. So I'm confused. It's it's very disjointed. Because you've got this beautiful introductory art. And then you've got this uh, this story with Star... I'm sorry, does this Star Spangled Kid story feel like an episode of the Hulk TV show to you? Because <laughs> yeah, I never really, really thought about it. But did. You're, you're kind of right. It does have like that... Because the way everyone's dressed, it feels like a... You can almost hear the waka-chicka-waka-chicka music as he's driving along. Well, yeah, so. you know, you, you got Star Spangled Kid drives into town, you know, and, and this poor schlub that runs a gas station needs his help, and they, they kick his ass, and so he becomes the superhero, and then they go and they take him down. And this is not, is this not the Hulk? <laughs> it feels a lot like it. Um. Anyway, let's see, specific notes here. 
Um, I, I just, I think it's too bad that, that, uh, you know, it wasn't Newton and Disney got on the entire book. I probably would have liked the, the Star Spangled Kid story a lot better if, uh, if just the art was better. It mm-hmm. just, yeah, I just don't care for it. Page one, I'm going to go back to, uh, my notes in sequence here. Page one, I don't believe for a minute that that's brainwave underneath that shroud because his body is far too long and his head's not big and bulbous enough. So who is that? On the gurney? Yeah. <laughs> uh, page two. Are Norda and Hector really going to reconcile? Because nobody wants to see that. Everybody hates Norda. <laughs> <laughs> page three. What's the deal with Pouty Superman? Yeah. Just because he tore up Metropolis now and, and, and lost the love of millions of metropolitans, all of a sudden he's all pouty and he wants to leave Earth. This Hmm? see, I can get him being like feeling bad about tearing up, you know, the city he was sworn to protect. Right. Um, What bugs me is that he's just like, I don't even know if I was supposed to be here in the first place. You're married, dude. Right. You have a wife that you supposedly love. Are you saying you're going to just leave her? (sighs) Yeah, I don't I don't care for this. This characterization of Earth Two Superman. I got to be honest with you. Uh, let's see. It was nice to see the death of the Crimson Avenger Incorporated. Again, you know, I, I got to give Roy Thomas major kudos for being just a class act. You know, he, he's working with stories he didn't write, he didn't necessarily approve of that, from what I've heard, kind of pissed him off a little bit when they started doing those whatever happened to stories. Mm-hmm. Yet the dude is incorporating them into his work here and i i just think that's a class act you know and uh i think that's that's awesome of him very big of him absolutely jumping way ahead here uh page 11 now we're into the star spangled kid uh story here Mm. page 11 panel three holy deliverance batman what the hell is going on here that's not right stop that Oh, that's just not... Oh, I don't want to look at that anymore. All right, page 22. Panel 3, yes, here we go. Um, Good job, cops. How the hell are you going to take the bad guys in in a friggin' helicopter? Aren't there, How many bad guys were there? Weren't there like three or four bad guys? They're not all going to fit in there. Right? They'll do it one at a time. Well, I guess. They'll leave Jimmy the new guy behind to watch him and... <laughs> they'll hand, handcuff them to the landing strut and drag their asses back. <laughs> oh man. Um. Okay. Yes. Uh. Last two pages here. Now it's beautiful and all. You've got all of Infinity Incorporated together. You've got all of the JSA together. They're actually getting along. They're having private little conversations one on one. They're all taking a moment to reflect as they look at the beautiful mountainy snowy landscape and everything on on the life and the death of brainwave and you know their their new destiny as a team blah 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 what i really want to know how many planes fell out of the sky and church buses full of nuns drove off cliffs while these assholes stood around moping for an entire issue (laughs) this is pretty much the entirety of earth 2's superheroes and they're doing not a damn thing for 24 pages Come on! Well, technically, they're not doing a damn thing for four pages, so... Well, yeah, this is true. 
Still, still. No, I get what you're saying. I'm just... <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, but, you know, uh, oh, God, it's okay. I like next me. issue a whole lot better than this. Oh, and uh, it bears repeating, Norda sucks. <laughs> That's what I got for this one. What do you got, Mike? Um, page two, shut up, Norda. Just, <laughs> just shut up. I mean, seriously, I mean, we have this really somber first page, which I really liked. Even, even the sheriff's, like, a little upset, but, you know... You all right, Hector? Maybe I'm getting there, Norda, for the first time in a long time. And if I am, I've got a lot of making up to do to a lot of people, Hector says, starting with you. I Well, there goes the ambulance with the body of Brainwave, because Hawkman secretly hates Norda. <laughs> Just completely cuts him off. Uh, you don't think the next two words he was going to say is love you, do you? <laughs> That's creepy. Um... <laughs> God, the feathers would just get in the way. Page, th- ah! <laughs> page three. I'm I'm with you. I I get the feeling that this Roy Thomas is a fantastic writer. I love just about everything I've read of his. But every once in a while, especially if you read like ideas that he had that he never got to do, that sometimes he just wants to play with things strictly to play with it, and. Mm-hmm. To a certain extent, having Superman be mopey and doubt his mission and if he belongs on Earth is something you can do on Earth, too. I just don't think it's a good idea. So, uh, Pages 4 to 6, I love, like you, that the DC Comics Presents story with the Crimson Avenger is incorporated. And it was great seeing all of the, um, all of the uh, Seven Soldiers of Victory back together. Page 6, though. That second panel. What is with that cheese-eaten-looking star-spangled kid? I mean, just like... <laughs> I always pictured him skinny. Maybe that's maybe that's my problem. Yeah, he is far too uh, big and beefy in this. Yeah. Page 7. I, I always... I, you know, with him still being relatively young compared to the other heroes... And going by the name Kid, to me, he should be much more like Newton draws him, where he's very lanky and mm-hmm. lean. Spider-Man-like. Uh, it's funny that you mention, you know, how this felt like an episode of The Incredible Hulk. There was a 70s vibe through this, through the hair, the mm-hmm. clothing and everything. Page 7, that shot of the feathered hair uh, star-spangled kid is just like, wow, That's that it feels so outdated yeah. compared to the rest of the issue. That's why I really expected to find out that this was an inventory because it feels like it's rescued out of like a backup yeah. in uh, in Freedom Fighters or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, I mean I don't mean that necessarily in a, in a bad or in a jokey way. I, I mean I'm really serious about that by the by the vibe it gives, by the look of the characters and their hair and their clothes, and just the art in general. It has a a very mid to late 70s dc feel of something like freedom fighters so i i you know if this is uh contemporaneous with the framing sequence then i'm kind of shocked because uh yeah george tuska needs to kind of get with the decade you know the uh pages 11 and 12 wow god the kid sure gets his ass kicked rather easily And then they start taking his clothes off, and it's just like, whoa, 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 hey, 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 whoa. Hey, now, whoa, stop. Uh, (laughs) Page 14, they kidnap Dugan's son. That's why they call them terrorists, Kent. I mean, seriously, it's just like, what did you expect these guys to do? And is it me, 
Or is the fact that Pat Dugan is helping these people, like, glossed over? Like, they never really... Like, it's it's briefly mentioned, well, he's kind of short on money. But he's basically arming criminals. That's, mm-hmm. yeah, it feels so weird. And the whole rest of the story is just like, you know, Pat Dugan's like, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. Oh, you didn't steal my money? Oh, let's go team up again. We're good. Yeah, and they do the secret handshake and everything. Um... <laughs> Like you, I kind of cut ahead. Pages 20 uh, and, and and 21. It's a nice wrap-up to the fight, but it's still, just God, this whole part of the story, just, yeah, Jesus. And I just didn't enjoy it. I mean, no. it, it, it... After 10 issues of forward progression and getting the story, you know, of setting up the team, they basically give us a fill-in yes yeah and that was a little disappointing because i wanted to really get into the team and we get that in the next issue and i really like the next issue yeah i do too uh the meanwhile column in this issue was a guest meanwhile uh and 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 dick giordano would do this when people would write letters in and stuff but it's written by fabian nicieza is it? You know, I didn't even look. Yeah, you're right. Who would I go on even... to be a prolific writer over at Marvel? He was a big X guy in the '90s, and uh, yeah, uh, he worked at DC like post Infinite Crisis. He's doing some some stuff now. I forget what it is, but it was just kind of interesting to see his name pop up there. I liked his run on uh, Thunderbolts. I thought it was really good. And page page twenty four. Uh, this is Norda. No, wait. What was I thinking of? A day so filled with tragedy is hardly the time for us being the harbingers of good news. Isn't it, Norda? Or is it maybe the best time of all? Like, shut up, Norda! <laughs> <laughs> like, like Norda could go, God, you know, those Nazis, they were terrible people. They, The Holocaust and everything. And everyone would be like, I don't know what you're talking about, Norda. They were the greatest things ever, just to be contrary to Norda. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know, Norda. Were they really all that bad? Come on now. <laughs> Everybody hates Norda. <laughs> really wish I could get music behind that. Oh yes, I will. I will scour and see if I'm. I must have some some short little ditty where we could we could add music to everybody hates Norda. Well, that's got to exist somewhere. I mean, Harlan Freilicher, uh, who I'm friends with on Facebook, and I think listens to this show. Uh, I know he listens to the Fire and Water podcast on the latest. Uh, they just they just released another Who's Who uh, episode because they're wrapping mm-hmm. up that series, the first one at least. And one of his comments to their episode was that no one in the episode at any point made fun of Norda. So <laughs> it's true. No one likes his character. I mean, at some point we're going to get like a really nasty email from Roy Thomas about how we're picking on Norda and how he's like a large explanation. Either that or we're going to get the email going, you know, guys, you know, don't say this on the air, but yeah, he sucked. (laughs) (laughs) I'm good with either one. Yeah. (laughs) Strictly speaking, I agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, is that all we got for this one? Yeah, that's all we got for uh, God, We just had nothing to say about it. No, I, I really did not. I mean, I loved, as I said, you know, I, I love the framing sequence uh, art-wise. But yeah, that's that's the kindest thing I can really say about it. I I did not uh, I did not enjoy the the fill-in nature of this one at all. Sorry. 
All right. Why? What say we take a, another quick little break, play another promo or two, and we will come back with the uh, the massive conclusion to this one with our epic uh, oh, elsewhere Jesus. in the DC universe crisis management edition coverage. Holy crap! <laughs> We're gonna be here for days. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked, and young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived, and nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars Story, monthly at MyStarWarsStory.com Two True Freaks just got a little more random. Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that looks at everything random in the world of popular culture, is now on the Two True Freaks Network. Every episode is something different. Movies, comics, television, music. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork, at twotruefreaks.com and popcultureaffidavit.com. Alrighty, folks, we are back with our penultimate and largest edition of Crisis Management. Dear God in heaven, we had a lot. I started going through it last night going, oh, I just got a couple, but oh, God, how many comics do I have to read? So Yes, <laughs> this is massive. This covers one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven Count them seven books. Yeah, this is this is a massive one right here. I am going to endeavor to make this as uh, quick and painless as possible because, yeah, we have rather a lot to go through. All right, so <clears throat> I hope you are sitting comfortably. This is Elsewhere in the DC Multiverse Crisis Management Editions. All synopses are from the official Crisis on Infinite Earths Crossover Index. This, as Mike said, is the most number of pre-crisis monitor appearances in one month yet. And we're going to cover all of them. We're going to cover the highs, the lows, everything in between. Uh, I think it's worth pointing out um, that a number of these, I first noticed it in Vigilante number 14, but a number of these actually carry the DC Comics obituary for Don Newton, which I thought was uh, was rather touching. The, The little headshot that they have of Newton is actually... Uh, he actually drew it himself, so it's a self-portrait in you know comic style of uh, of Don Newton. Uh, I miss the guy to this very day. I thought he was a, a hell of a talented artist, and uh, and taken far too soon. It was a real shame, but uh, but that is in the that's what the meanwhile column is in several of the books for this month, particularly the uh, the Baxter series books. So, as I said, jumping right into this, we're going to start off, and uh, I'm doing this in the order that they are in the crossover index. So, number one on the list, Vigilante, number 14. 
The synopsis for this one is the monitor is revealed to be the supplier of Mr. Hammer's shadow suit. The monitor is not seen in this issue. No, he's not. And I'd just not. like to point out, yeah, yeah, he's not mentioned either. So I'm sorry, but I'm calling bullshit on this one. Thank you, because I was wondering, because I read it. I read it cover to cover. And mm-hmm. I'm like, where is the monitor? Where? Okay, maybe maybe I'm just stupid. But, uh, what the hell? <laughs> I poured through this one. Poured through this one. Which was hard to do, because I'll be honest with you, yeah, not, not a, a good issue. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Well, I, I'm going to address some of that here in a moment. But yeah, in short, yeah, didn't dig this one. But uh, seriously, nowhere in this issue is the monitor even alluded to. So I'm going to put out the call that if somebody can point me to where and specifically why this should be considered a pre-crisis monitor appearance, I'll take a look at the evidence. But uh, you know, to my mind, this one should be tossed out and scratched off the official list. Um, now I actually went so far as to dig up more issues of the vigilante thinking that, okay, if you look in the official crisis on infinite earths crossover index, it does list this issue. It says vigilante number 14, but then in the date, it says January 1985, we are clearly in February and number 14 is the February cover dated issue. So I thought, Hmm, maybe there's a mistake. So I went and I looked at number 13. Nope, it's not in there. So I looked ahead. Number 15. Nope, it's not in there. From what I've read, this is specifically referencing a part of the book where the villain's girlfriend. Let me see if I can find it here. I did not make a specific page note. But she says uh, right here. It's on page 13. The panel layout's really strange. I would say that this is probably panel five, I guess. She says, Hammer was in Hong Kong when uh, when he was approached by a stranger, the man who invented that shadow suit he wears. That's it. So my guess for this one, and it is purely a guess, is that the writer of Crisis on Infinite Earths, of course, is Marv Wolfman. Marv Wolfman was the creator and at this time the writer-editor of this title, of this specific issue. So maybe he told somebody that wrote the official crossover index. Oh, yeah, by the way, she's talking about the monitor. But until I see that in print somewhere, I don't buy it. I throw this one out. I think it's a ripoff. Um, I got to further point out. Now, again, I've read precious little of the vigilante. So a lot of my impression of him comes from this issue. I think the vigilante sucks. I don't like his look. He's constantly getting shot and getting knocked out, getting stymied and getting his ass kicked. Plus there's a reference in here late in the issue that apparently he has a mutant healing factor. So what's he like? He's like the friggin' Wolverine now. And the art is horrible in this issue. It's just not good. I really do feel ripped off on this. I hope I didn't pay much for it. I don't remember at this point. I've had it a long time. I wonder how much uh, extra DC had to pay for all the black. Man, I'm telling you. There's just so much black ink on this thing. Too dark, too gritty, too moody, and yeah, I'm sorry. I, I know what they were going for with the Vigilante, but he just doesn't work. And again, I mean, this being one of my very few impressions of the character, what a pussy. I mean, he's just so ineffectual. This would be like if the Punisher was a complete and utter clump, you know, klutz and failure. 
that's kind of what the vigilante is in this. He just he's constantly getting the shit kicked out of him. <laughs> and I mean, it's not in like an Indiana Jones kind of way. It's more like in a boy, you just suck kind of way. You're bad at your job, sir. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, enough on that one. Did you have any thoughts on that specific issue? Uh, I, I it was such a slog to get. Th- I I gotta admit, when I got about halfway through, I'm like, okay, okay, and just started scrolling down. <laughs> Because I didn't care. Because you know, we, we, you know, like some of the issues, like you know, the, the Legion issue, especially that we're going to be talking about. I really got into the story, I, right? I, I really liked it, and I was like, ah, oh, this is good. You know, you know, I, I realized that I am not a regular reader, or I was not a regular reader of any of any of these books, really. And I haven't really gone back and examined. I'm, I got like almost an entire run of Vigilante, and I've not cracked, uh, you know issue one of that except for this one which i did dig out you know when we were getting all of our books when i was getting my books together and i just was just like wow this is maybe it gets better later and from what i understand the later issues of the series written by paul kupperberg things pick up and it gets to be like a crazy ride but i was just like "Mm." i think alan moore had a short run on the book too if i'm not mistaken i don't know how it is but it's could be either I'm... really good or really bad yeah so i don't i don't know if i want to read alan moore's thoughts on a on a character like that right all right next one along is tales of the legion of superheroes number 320 the monitor provides universo with the services of a thief call uh, named magpie This is the second of two back-to-back Monitor appearances in Tales of the Legion of Superheroes. Mm -hmm. The Monitor's role. Page four, panel three. Magpie wonders how the guy who hired him could supply all the right codes to the Legion's HQ's uh, computers. Page uh, six, panels four and five. Magpie discovers the Monitor's information isn't 100% correct as the item he has come to steal is not present in the Legion trophy room and Magpie curses him. Page eight, last two panels. Magpie checks the floor plan and thinks to himself that the Monitor had better be right on the nose this time or their contract is over. And then page 15, uh, the whole page is the true appearance uh, Magpie, whose thoughts narrate the issue, tells us that the Monitor took back all the gadgets he'd been uh, that he'd given Magpie after the thief's failed mission uh, to the Legion headquarters. Magpie is glad to be through with the Monitor, however, as he gave him the creeps. So we get a shot of the Monitor's satellite in orbit around the shielded Earth of the 30th century. Lila remarks that they managed to retrieve everything except the dematerializer and asked the monitor if she should forfeit part of his uh, advance credits to cover the loss. But the monitor assures her that it's quote unquote only money and that they are above such meager interest, which I really like that sequence because that kind of hints towards something bigger that he's not what he seems as just a supplier of bad guys. Uh, The Monitor turns his attention to a telecom where he discusses Magpie's failure with Universo and he offers further assistance should he still want to try, should Universo still want to try for the prize in Legion headquarters again, but Universo declines. As standard, only the Monitor's blue-gloved hand is shown and the shadowed back of his head. Lila looks especially good in the two panels she's in. I think the art is very nice in this issue. It's by uh, Jurgens and uh, Kessel, or Kiesel. Mm-hmm. And uh, even if the story is fairly pedestrian. And I was glad to uh, to discover that I really like 
the pencils in this one because we will be covering another uh dan jurgens penciled issue i think that's next Mm -hmm. time around yeah Yeah. and um and i didn't feel as good about that one i gotta be honest with you uh like i say the story's kind of pedestrian at least for for this era of uh of legion but i did enjoy it i mean anytime i i dig out a legion issue from this era it is it's it's like visiting old friends that i haven't seen in a long time because i this is one of of the books we're covering for this uh, elsewhere in the DC multiverse segment, this is one of the ones I was buying and, and was a faithful reader of, unlike most of the other ones that are on this list. Uh, I was a big Legion fan at this time. Uh, pages nine and 10 are gorgeous. It's, uh, a, uh, what do you call these things? A schematic, uh-huh. a two page spread schematic of the new Legion, uh, headquarters that I think is really pretty awesome. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I got on this one. You know, like I said, just it's always nice to pay a visit to this specific Legion. And uh, I was rather stunned when I pulled this one out of the bag to look at it. This is like a pristine mint copy. I don't know where I got this one, but it is flawless, which uh, is not always the case with some of my older, well-loved comics. So that was that was a nice discovery. That's pretty much all I got on this one. What did you think of it? I loved it. Uh, I like the fact that Oliver Queen apparently survived into the 30th century yeah. and is serving as a tour guide. So, <laughs> guy fell on hard times. No, it was it was just neat to see Magpie go through the headquarters. The monitor appearances felt very organic uh, to the story. I loved the artwork. I mean, I'm, I'm a Dan Jurgens mark. So, and then just to see him inked by Kessel kind of early in both of their careers with lettering by Adam Kubert. So this is like an all-star of people who would one day be something uh, like big, high. I mean, Jurgens is still working to this day. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if you, you, you had a chance to look at the, uh, the letters page, but there is a long-ass letter from a guy named Michael Robinson about how he wants Supergirl and Brainiac to be like, Brainiac 5 to be like together for reals. And he lays out like, you know, like all these ideas like, Brainiac 5 developing a taste for 20th century idiosyncrasies and maybe working on a force field with Prince or Springsteen in the background or clarifying the nuances of slang with Superboy. I mean, it's just like, wow, you uh, you really need to write some fanfic, sir, because apparently you've got <laughs> some things to work out. So, <laughs> no, I liked this one a lot. I, I loved the artwork. I mean, it just like, you know, it's really kind of funny watching, you know, looking at this now and then thinking of time and time again, where Jurgens's issues of Adventures of Superman all had the Legion in them. And now I'm seeing where he kind of, you know, because it felt like he had a love for that property. And I, and I know he was a fan of it, but I, I just didn't realize that he, you know, worked on it early in his career. So Magpie's a weird looking character. Yeah, he is. I wonder if uh, he's related to the... Uh, john byrne magpie from man of steel number three that's what i thought of when i when i hear that name that's what i think of is that particular character (laughs) i will say this on page six when he's walking through the statues that middle panel where you have more drew and the two other ones it looks like they're they're like singing it like a really crappy like chuck e cheese (laughs) rock thing it's just like hey everybody (laughs) well that the third guy does look kind of like uh uh, what was the the McDonaldland character that had a cheeseburger for a head? Mayor McCheese. Well, there was Mayor McCheese, but there was another one too that had a hamburger for. I can't remember what his name was. There was Mayor McCheese, Big Mac. There was Big Mac too, the cop. But yeah, that's what he looks like. He looks like 
I don't know. He just looks really weird. But he does. He looks like he has a cheeseburger for a head. Back when McDonald's had weird mascots. <laughs> right. So. Now, do you read the uh, the Interlac script? Can you read that? No. Because I, I, I was wondering if you were joking or if you were serious, but that guy driving driving the tour at the beginning, that is Ollie Queen of the 30th century. Oh, okay. Wow. It, it's one of his descendants. Um, I think he appears sporadically in the Legion of this time, I, I think. Because uh, it seems to me I've, I've seen him in something else, too. He may be in that DC Comics Presents story, Superman in the Legion of Substitute Heroes. I think he's in that. I could be wrong, but... Yeah, if you read Interlac on the side of the of the like stadium seating thing that the tourists are sitting in, it says Ollie Queen Tours on the side of it. I just thought that was cool. Nerd. But yeah, that's all I got on this one. I uh, I enjoyed this one and I like the art. All right, next up, woo, you talk about your slogs, Mike. This was this was the one that was kind of a slog for me. Amethyst, Princess of <sighs> Gemworld, number two. The monitor discovers and observes Amethyst. That's the synopsis from the uh, crossover index. Well, not exactly, says I. The monitor's roll, page 20, first four out of five panels on that page. We get the customary shot of the satellite in Earth orbit. Uh, then turning inside, we are witness to the monitor's discovery of an immense power reading from the city of Hudson. And he is dismayed because he doesn't have a record of any super beings there. Getting a fix, he discovers the source of the power is a sleeping child. That's Amy, not Amethyst herself. Now, I know that's a minor distinction, but still, I thought it was worth pointing out. It's not Amethyst he's observing. It's Amy he's observing. Uh, Again, only the monitor's blue-gloved hands and the back of his head are shown, and uh, Lila's pink jumper is backless in this particular appearance. Uh, my only note for this one is that I read it, couldn't follow it worth a damn, and it's not my kind of comics. At some point, I'm going to read all of Amethyst, and as I got through to like page three, I'm like, there's a lot here I don't understand. And yeah. we've got so much to cover in this one. I was just like, okay, scroll, 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 scroll. Oh, there's a the monitor. Oh, okay, yep. really didn't really didn't go anywhere. Close out file. <laughs> I mean, I'm not insulting Amethyst because I'm sure I if I read like the the original twelve issue mini because it was a twelve issue miniseries. Yeah, I think it was. I think. And then yeah. this is the ongoing, and we're going to be reading another issue of Amethyst when we get into Crisis. Uh, mm-hmm. I just didn't care for it. It's really, it just wasn't my cup of tea. It seems to me that I had the original Amethyst 12-issue series at one point. Man, I don't remember it at all. I know I don't have it anymore. I think I sold it, but uh, I, I I could not remember. I really, you know, I read all of these to varying degrees. This one I actually read trying to make some sense of it, and I just couldn't follow it. To me, it felt like... Uh, one of those issues of a comic that just, you know, every couple of pages just forwards the subplots a little bit, but without it actually having a, 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 a an overall story of its own for the issue, that's really what it felt like to me. Anyway, I know Amethyst has her fans, and I don't want to piss them off, so I'm going to just move along here. Now, the ne- the next one on the list, this one is worth noting, folks. This one's worth uh, perking up for a bit because... Those of you that are in the know, those of you that follow such a thing, you're probably going to go, wait, 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 wait. All right, so the next one on the list is GI Combat number 274. 
Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are probably going, wait, 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 that's not on the list. That's not in the index. And you're absolutely right. Here's the deal. There is an error in the index, an error that has been compounded over the 30 years since crisis because it is constantly reported and misreported all over the internets and all over fanzines and everywhere else that the two appearances of the you know two pre-crisis monitor appearances uh, in GI combat are 275 and 276. That is not right. It is actually 274 and 275. 276 does not, does not contain an appearance by the monitor. It's an error. So I'm here to hopefully put this damn thing to rest once and for all and correct that error. I went so far as my one and only Wikipedia entry ever is on the crisis page where I corrected the damn thing. So hopefully it will stay corrected. But yes, um, officially speaking, it should be 274 and 275. Now, if I'm not mistaken, the omnibus, that supplementary book that comes with the uh, omnibus that reprints the crossover index i think they did finally fix it in that book if i'm not mistaken unfortunately i don't have it here sitting in front of me but i do believe that i made a note that they did finally fix it in that book so anyway gi combat number 274 by the way i want to throw a big thank you to my co-host michael bailey for supplying me with this issue this was the one issue i lacked all these years because i didn't know that it had that in it. Once I finally tracked it down and everything, Mike was the one that helped me get it because man, some of these crisis cross or excuse me, both crisis crossovers, but especially the pre-crisis monitor appearances, some of them are damn hard to find. And this, the GI combat ones were the hardest ones for me. Cause they're just, I think their print runs were really low. So they're not expensive. They're just hard to find. Anyway, the monitor appears before the haunted tank crew and is seen by the startled ghost of Jeb Stewart. The monitor's physical appearance is first revealed in this story. Now, what I've heard about this is that there was some sort of editorial snafu or whatever to where they didn't realize that they weren't supposed to show him. That's what I've heard. I don't know if that's really true. Anyway, this is the first of two back-to-back monitor appearances in GI Combat. So, you know what? It occurs to me that I totally did not make the monitor's role in this issue notation like I usually do. So, flipping very quickly, it is on page five. It is, basically, it's the bottom half of the page. You've got basically five panels, and it's the bottom three panels. You literally do have uh, the monitor... Uh, sneaks up on the ghost of Jeb Stewart. Now, here's the weird thing, is that this is the most distinct image we have gotten thus far of the monitor. Uh, You can clearly see what kind of outfit he has on. Now, we're seeing him from the back, uh, but you see he has capes. He has these giant uh, shoulder protector things. He's got kind of his neck brace thing on. He's got... uh, like Norman Osborn style cornrow things in his hair and everything. He's got gauntlets on, but the way he's colored and the realm that he appears to be appearing before Jeb Stewart in gives the appearance that he is also in the ghostly realm like Jeb Stewart is. So it's a little bit weird. Yeah. It almost gives him a, a ghost feeling. It's extremely and the fact strange. That, yeah. And Jeb Stewart even says, you came up on me like a ghost. 
And he says, I never saw the likes of you before. Who are you? Where are you from? And he says, I am the monitor. New to this realm of of blood and death. That is all I can reveal now. And then he disappears. So that's it. But it's still very cool. I really like this. This is the most we have seen. And, And there's also a little inset picture of the monitor where we get to see his eyes we see more of his funky uh, cornrow hair, and we see that he has very prominent, uh, prominent eyebrows, much like uh, like Martian Manhunter or something. He has, uh, you know, those what do they call it? like Cro-Magnon type <laughs> type eye, eye ridges, eyebrows. Um, but that's pretty much it. Now, the simple fact that this error exists and persists makes me question other entries, such as Vigilante Number Fourteen that I pointed out earlier, and I wonder if there are other errors or even god forbid omissions that exist that's gonna keep me awake at night thinking that there might be more of them out there that i don't know about that makes me really crazy so uh hopefully you know you the listeners can help out with that if you know of other monitor exists uh appearances that exist that we don't end up covering on this please clue me in because i really do want to be a completist on this stuff as a matter of fact i'm not going to talk about it this episode but um Coming up in a future installment, I will be talking about a comic that uh, I just recently found some people are citing on official, quote-unquote, official reading lists of The Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, I have an issue with that particular one that they're pointing to, so uh, I'll mention that in a future one. Um, The only note I really had on the story at all is that it is totally unclear whether the haunted tank is destroyed at the end of this story. It just ends, and it looks like the tank's blowed up. And they don't pick that shit up in the next issue at all. So, yeah, it's frustrating. I, you know, the kindest thing I can say about this is it ain't my kind of comics. I don't like war comics. And this is a lot of the reason why right here. What do you think of it, Mike? I kind of wonder if the conversation about, you know, what issue of GI Combat did this come up in? It's just like, was that 274, 275? It was 275, 276. Who the hell was reading that book anyways? So <laughs> I don't know. It was one of those issues. Yeah. Which is unfair because GI you know, War Comics have their fans and uh I I I'm not a big fan of Robert yep. Kaniger as a writer, so it was kinda hard to get through. I I was amused that Attila the Hun is the ghost in the enemy tank. And it's kinda right. like it's kinda like when Kit went up against Carr on Knight Rider. <laughs> it's just like this is the evil haunted tank. <laughs> Oh, brother. Uh, and the monitor appearance is just like, who are you? I'm the monitor. I'm new here. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't make I any mean... sense to me. I, it's just like, <laughs> it's it's like sometimes we've read these these monitor appearances, and I feel like God, I, I shaved my legs for this. I mean, seriously. I... <laughs> and it's funny because I found this issue. And I'm like, oh, good, I found it. Because Scott told me that this is the one. And I bought it. And then I went to another dealer. This was all at Dragon Con. And I found another copy. And I'm like, well, I'm just destined to find this. After that, I can't find a single... I mean, it's like on eBay for extreme... Like, God, these back issues of GI Combat are just too damn expensive. Uh, I, I guess the print... Pl- print runs the print runs were just so low that now you know getting these issues is kind of harder and harder and harder uh mm-hmm. and uh i just i'm 
why GI combat? Was it to show that, you know, the monitor's effects are far reaching? He's in the future. He's in the past. He's all over. He's on Earth, too. He's on this Earth. It's just like, I just didn't. I felt like I wasted my time, really, reading this, right. in all honesty. <laughs> I, I feel you, and I feel much the same way, but at the same rate, I, I like the nature of just what you said, that this is meant to illustrate the fact once you piece it together, and if you are one of those people that was buying like everything, because this was at a time when I feel like you still could, if you wanted to, buy pretty much everything that one company was putting out for the most part. So if you were one of those kind of fans that was buying everything and you started to piece the picture together, then the monitor would appear that much cooler and mysterious to you that, holy cow, this guy was just in the Legion in the 30th century on earth one. Now he's here on earth two in the forties. Now he's here with the haunted tank on earth. I I presume earth one in the 40, you know, so it's all over the place, you know? And And I like that. Um, unfortunately not all of the appearances are stellar, you know, and this is just, this is one of them. This one is just, this one's noteworthy and this one's worth having just because this is the first time we actually get to see the monitor. I mean, it's not the greatest, uh, you know, uh, depiction of him, but it's the most complete picture we've gotten so far. Cause up till now he's just been either a hand or the shadowy back of a head. And, and in this one, you pretty much get to see him, which I thought was really cool. All right, next up, we have Wonder Woman, number 323. The Monitor manipulates events so that Dr. Psycho, the Silver Swan, and Angleman are pitted against the Amazon-powered Etta Candy. Etta Candy, yeah. <laughs> the Monitor's role. Now, this one's pretty cool because he actually is kind of incorporated into this. It's not just like a, a, a quick little panel thing. Yeah. He's, uh, he's part of the story in this. So page one, first five of six panels. We open with the obligatory satellite shot, and then we cut to the interior where the monitor puts a ranting and raving Dr. Psycho on hold. Uh, only the monitor's blue gloved hand is shown. And Lila is in her standard pink jumper with a low V-cut in the back. Slightly different than the one shown in Amethyst number two. That was just simply back less. Page seven, bottom four panels, another obligatory satellite shot. Then the monitor communicating with the silver swan who is hunting for Captain Wonder. Now, this part of the story is strange because Lila just butts right into the conversation and says, wait a second, I thought Captain Wonder was really Dr. Psycho, your current client. Now, what's odd about that is that it's never made clear if the Silver Swan can hear this outburst or not, not to mention that it seems kind of out of character for Lila, you know, as much or as little as we actually know about her character at this point. It seems out of character for her to just butt in like this, you know, just blurt out in the middle of this conversation. So what I want to know is, uh, you know, did the monitor place this on hold? Was there like a, you know, like a, a mute button or something? Was he wanting to hold on to this information and not share it until Lila blurted it out? Um, you know, did Silver Swan actually hear this exchange? And that none of that's really made clear. But regardless, uh, Monitor asked Lila to trust him that he knows what he's doing. I always know what I'm doing, he says. Uh, again, only so his glove. Shut hand- up. 
You can get the back of my hand. <laughs> only his uh, gloved hand is shown, and Lila is shown only from the front in these panels, revealing that her jumper is also low-cut in the front. Page 14, all but the first panel on this page. Monitor and Lila watch the goings-on in the issue as Etta Candy is mistaken for our heroine, Wonder Woman. Uh, Lila asks... Uh, is that little butterball really Wonder Woman? Now, that's a statement that I can't imagine not catching at least some flack these days. Uh, the Monitor says he's unlike, uh, seen unlikelier combinations of superhero and secret identity, and I had to kind of rack my brains to think of some. Uh, he then takes a call from the Angle Man <laughs> that is unintentionally hilarious. It goes like this. Monitor, Angle Man here. You got me my angler back, but I still can't power it up. Yeah, just use your imagination, kids. Instead of recommending little blue pills, the monitor tells Angleman to go to the National Air and Space Museum to find a solution to his problem. <laughs> Lila calls him out on the fact that that's where Dr. Psycho, the cheetah, and the silver swan are holding at a candy whom they mistake for Wonder Woman. And that he's, uh, you know, you're getting a kick out of this the whole time, aren't you? And uh, the monitor just plays innocent about the whole thing. But I liked that. I liked that there was actually a little bit of comedic something between Lila and the monitor. And that the monitor seems to have kind of a playful side, at least this time around. Uh, No satellite shot this time, yay. And only the monitor's hands are shown. Lila is particularly risque in her low-cut skin-tight bodysuit. And then finally, pages 16, or excuse me, page 16, rather, panels two through four. Uh, the Angleman speculates on just why the monitor sent him to the museum. Uh, let's see, my notes for this one. You know, I was kind of dreading this one, but it's actually not half it's bad. The fun. problem is, yeah, the problem with this one is entirely in the art. Don Heck, God love him, never a favorite of mine is way past his prime doing this title and the art looks rushed bland and i gotta say it just uninspired which is a shame because dan mishkin's script is actually fun if a little silly uh there's a lot of shit going on in this issue my synopses were were very very uh as brief as i could make them but man there's there was a lot going on in this um, I never knew about the character called Glitch before and could have easily gone the rest of my life without knowing about him because, wow, what a shit character. Um, Captain Wonder just makes me giggle. The Atomic Knight shows up. <laughs> the Atomic friggin' Knight. I love that guy. Um, now, if Etta Candy is supposed to be fat, that's not clearly depicted here. I think she just looks like a real normal-sized woman. I don't see where you know she's called a butterball and i don't see and i have seen her drawn as being you know that the tubby little you know that that 40s character that uh, i can't imagine would be uh too accepted today but yeah i don't see that in this and my last note for this one wonder woman you two-timing bitch she's she's about to go and give uh glenn talbot uh you know uh A little, uh, a little laughter. <laughs> he is, he is totally Glenn Talbot. That's funny. <laughs> um, I was surprised that I enjoyed this issue as much as I did. You are not going to convince me that editorial did not go into 
this issue and redraw Wonder and have somebody redraw Wonder Woman's face because everything about this thing is like Don Heck, Don Heck, that Wonder Woman on page four is not Don Heck. <laughs> that face, no. No, 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 no. And then later it's like she's softer, mm. like than all the other characters. Right. I think somebody redrew her. Like they used to do with Jack Kirby's Superman faces. That could be, yeah. Now that you say that, yeah, she's she's got a much softer Yeah. That could very well be. Um Yeah, I just I think the monitor's funny in this, but he's kind of a jerk. And now the Silver Swan is my client as well. What of it? Huh? <laughs> I always know what I'm doing. <laughs> I was I was surprised that he was integrated into the story as closely as he was. Uh, when did Paul Spataro start playing the Monitor anyway? Um, Angle Man calling for technical <laughs> assistance. Uh, he can't get his angler up. Okay, Poor okay, bastard! Okay, I got it right in front of me. Yes, I've turned it off and on. Yes, I've unplugged it. Oh, okay. Okay, so reset the settings? Okay, okay, that's not working. Oh, don't, don't put me on... Oh, damn it. <sighs> Bad enough I'm talking from Steve, to Steve from New Delhi. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. And all I, I don't, now all I picture all hold music is that one from like the Little Caesars commercial where you're wasting your life just waiting and holding and waiting forever. <laughs> So, uh, no, it was a fun issue. I, I enjoyed this quite a bit. This one I paid attention to a little more than the others. Captain Wonder is fucking silly. <laughs> yep. How sucked is Glitch? He's he's a little green alien with giant pointy ears, big black eyes, antenna, blonde mullet, or kind of like a mullet, and basically a pink Starfleet uniform from the Star Trek movie. What the hell is this thing? I don't know. I, I maybe at He's... some point I'll I'll read all of this run of Wonder Woman. Wow. It's not exactly high on my list. Yeah, me either. Um real quick though, I did have one last note. I, I'm supposed to read something here. So this is actually the intro to the letter column for this issue. I can't remember why I have this note, but hopefully it'll point itself out. So so this is quite a while back now when and this is by who the hell is speaking here? Oh, this is uh Alan who is this? Alan Coverberg or Gold? This is the editor of the book. Let me flip back to the credit where the hell is the credits? Alan Gold. Okay, this is Alan Gold, the editor on this one. Uh, quite a while back now, when I was getting the hang of this funny, uh, funny book editing racket, I mentioned to Dan Mishkin that it would be fun someday to put together a big villain issue of Wonder Woman, a double or triple threat for our princess of power with each foe, a grade A nuisance in his or her own right. Dan, who has plans of his own, uh, for the storylines, uh, of this comic said something like, sure, Alan, sure. Anything you say and adroitly switched the subject during many uh, another conversation, I complimented Dan on his treatment of Etta Candy and hinted that uh, we might do worse than to devote the better part of an issue to Di's uh, irrepressible roommate. At such times, Dan would feign interest, of course, and then announce that Grace, his irrepressible daughter, wanted a snack or had to uh, or had a skit on Sesame Street to show him, and he uh, had to cut the phone call short without a moment's delay. 
Imagine my surprise, therefore, when Dan declared one day that he had thought up uh, just the story I wanted, a uh, Big Etta and the Villains issue. It all came together in his mind, he said, when he was looking for a noteworthy situation to bring the Monitor to these pages. The Monitor, as everybody knows, is a mysterious figure who's been snooping on the whole DC Universe from a gold-colored satellite. He's been spying for quite some time now, though in the beginning he concentrated on the new Teen Titans. I don't think his presence has been omitted from any DC comic lately, excepting maybe Sugar and Spike. You'll soon fi- uh, you'll find out soon enough what he's up to in the imminent Crisis on Infinite Earths maxi-series. The first issue will be on sale next month. Anyway, like all DC writers, Dan had to work uh, a Monitor story into the regular continuity of his book. I think Dan can take a bow for putting together the very best Monitor story to appear prior to the Crisis Maxi series. That's why I wanted to read this. Do we agree with that? Because I don't know. I think is in terms of being part of the story uh, and being kind of fun, maybe. But I, I gotta, I gotta admit though, the 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 more I read these and the more I I, I think of think of the the early monitor appearances the more i get that the emperor has no clothes sense and what i mean by that is that growing up you know knowing the legendary status of crisis you know i just had this assumption that dc just had everything worked out just absolutely they knew what they were doing they had all these appearances beforehand it went into the main book and it was just like this tightly controlled um you know series like this 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 was going this was the the best thing they ever did and then you read the research and you look into like the memos and it's just like wow they were kind of just making all this up as they went along. And that's how I feel about the monitor appearances. It's like, we need monitor appearances. Well, what's it going to be like? <laughs> Fuck if I know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> just, just put them in your book. And so if they were to do like a pro, like an omnibus, like, like, you know, Marvel does, or what they've been doing lately with like, you know, DC, they did DC 1 million where they put in a bunch of the crossovers and stuff. If they did like an omnibus of crisis where they put in all of the supplementary material, uh, like, and just had like the first chapter be nothing but a montage of all the monitor appearances. That would be messed up that there yeah. would be no flow to that whatsoever. There would have to be so much text. Um, I think the way to do it, it would be, yeah, like you said, it'd have to be a lot of text and it would be very disjointed. But the way to do it is exactly not to sound big headed. Please believe me. I'm not trying to, you know, to toot my own horn. But I think it would have to be the way that I've been doing this crisis management section. Which you've been doing a great job out, on, sir. Thank you for taking Thank you. Thank you very much. But, uh, no, I mean, it, it's a project of passion. It really is. I, I have been enjoying the hell out of it. This, uh, despite the, the massive level of homework that it involves, it has not been a slog. I, I love this. You know, I, I'm unapologetic in my love for Crisis on Infinite Earths and the Monitor. So this has been a lot of fun. I think that the only way, because I have thought long and hard about that, because there was a point when I was tracking down the individual issues because i'm very proud of the fact that i own all of these pre-crisis monitor appearances and the crossovers proper uh 
you know, as actual paper issues, you know, that I'm very proud of that. It's one of the, the high points of my collection for me personally is having tracked down these damn things and, and built that that collection. But as I collected it, and then, of course, as I had it collected, I thought, why the, why the hell has DC never done this themselves? Why haven't they put this together? And I think it's for the very reasons that you said, Mike, is that it would be just one friggin' messed up, disjointed read. So I think that the only way that they could do it properly is to do it much like I'm doing this section where you take what's relevant. So in a story like the GI combat thing, you just take those couple of panels because other than those couple of panels, it doesn't have a damn thing to do with that story as a whole. So why, why foist that on somebody? You know, why, why make them read that entire story or God forbid that entire issue of GI combat when, if you're there for crisis or you're there for the monitor, it's two panels, you know, that, that don't affect anything else. But then you have things where like Wonder Woman, this particular issue. Yeah. I mean, the the entire issue as a whole makes sense to reprint because, you know, he's an active part Mm -hmm. of that story. Well, yeah, so just, it'll be interesting to see. I, I mean, I would imagine one day they probably will. It'll be really interesting to see how they decide to do it. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I cut you off. I did not mean to interrupt. Yeah, you. I, I, no, I'm fine. It's good. <laughs> I lost my thought. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> like, sorry. Disappeared. Just like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. In the, in, in, into the air and gone. So, <laughs> um, you know, I had one as well, and now I can't remember what it was. So. Moving along here. Oh, I know what it was. Um, so to, to answer my own question, you know, do I agree with that? Eh, yes and no. I liked what you pointed out. It's the, been the most fun one so far, I think. As far as the most important or how did they phrase it? The most involved or whatever. I don't know if I would go that far because don't forget, even though the story sucked, the monitor ultimately led to the downfall in the uh, of the villain in that JSA JLA crossover story mm-hmm. that we covered um, with the what were they the champions yeah, the or whatever champion the hell family. they yeah I mean yeah the story wasn't really that good but if it wasn't for the monitor's involvement in that story it's arguable whether or not the teams could have beat him or not because he he provided the distraction that allowed them to send him to limbo or whatever the hell they did with him at the end of that story so I I would. I would argue that was more important than his role in this one, fun as it was. Anyway, next up, Action Comics number 564. The Monitor gives the Master Jailer an amnesia-inducing device that will work even on Superman. The Monitor's role, page 7, all but the first panel. In flashback, the Master Jailer thinks back to his communication with the Monitor in in which he was given the amnesia device. The Monitor tells him that while he cares not for the Jailer's plans, uh, that the Jailer must not allow Superman to be reminded of his true identity at any time within the first 48 hours of exposure, or he will be shocked back to normal. For instance, says the Monitor, if he were to don a Superman costume, all could be undone. Of course, that's exactly what happens. and But that's an interesting thing, too, because it almost implies foreknowledge on the part of the monitor that maybe he knew what was going to happen. Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe that's a stretch, but I thought it was interesting that the very thing he warns the jailer not to allow to happen happens. Uh, after the first panel uh, of the... Uh, 
Master Jailer speaking to the monitor through a Skype call and yet another obligatory satellite shot. The third and fourth panels of this particular appearance are the most revealing of the monitor so far, aside from GI Combat number 274. Mm -hmm. While he is colored dark blue and shadowy all over, the design of his outfit and the shape of his face and skull and the fact that he may very well be bald are clearly shown. Lila, uh, Lila is in her standard pink jumper with the low-cut front. Uh, my notes for this one, uh, very few. I liked this issue. I liked this issue a lot. Um, I dig Saviak's art on Superman so much now, and it makes me wonder why I didn't when I was a kid. I, I, I can't remember why. But I see this now, and I really, really enjoy it. Uh, there are some rather gaping holes in the logic of the story. For example, how did uh, the Master Jailer set up that job for Superman? That's never made clear. Where the hell did Mike Benton's clothes and apartment come from? So I actually <laughs> messaged the writer, Paul Kupperberg, on Skype, but unfortunately he has not gotten back to me. Um, it was probably the way I worded it, which was just simply, hey, Paul, how's it going? <laughs> I've got some super nerdy quaint. <laughs> no, that is not what I wrote. But it was kind of, I think that was almost the implied nature. I've got some super nerdy questions regarding Action Comics uh, number or whatever it is. Uh, can you help me out? And I did not hear back. He's probably like, I wrote that. So, <laughs> but, but yeah, basically what happens is the Master Jailer makes Superman forget he's Superman and he makes him believe that he's somebody else who's just a regular Joe that's like a dock worker or something, which is actually a really cool idea. And I, and I like the story. I, I really, truly do. But the problem is, is that Superman, um, he goes, oh, that's right. What am I doing here? I'm Mike Benson. I'm late for my first day on, on the job. And he goes to this job site and they're waiting for him. Now, how the hell did the master jailer put that together? Then He's later in the here. day, he takes a lunch break. Not to mention that he shows up to work in, like, not Clark Kent clothes. He shows up in, like, dock worker clothes. Where the hell did the clothes come from? Later on in the day, he takes a lunch break. He's got his own lunchbox and a, a, a lunch with him. Where did that come from? And then after work, he goes back and watches TV in his apartment. Where the hell did the apartment come It's not Clark Kent's apartment. So... You know, the I understand is the just that thorough. I guess, damn. But uh, you know, if you can overlook those logic things, it's actually a lot of. I really enjoyed that story a lot. I really did. Um, I do have a beef with my buddy Paul Kupperberg, though, dude. Wearing Superman's costume at this particular time doesn't make you invulnerable, especially not bulletproof. Uh, yeah, what? There, no, because remember, it's super elastic, so you couldn't break it or anything. But a regular Joe wearing Superman's outfit, the bullets it, would still it, penetrate, no, it's right? No, Kryptonian material. Under no, Earth's I understand yellow that, sun, but it is bulletproof. They, they, they mentioned that a bunch of times in the 70s. No, 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 don't get me wrong. I, what I'm talking about, there's a difference between bulletproof, okay, you know, not being able to pierce the material. But see if you follow me here. So like Superman's cape, for example, it can be stretched to infinite lengths with never ripping. Yeah. And, and you can't punch a hole in it or shoot a hole in it. But if if I were to, say, stand behind that cape and somebody fired machine gun bullets at it, I'd be riddled to death, right? No, because, because remember, 
all of the like the tests the Kents put the materials through, one of them was shooting it with a gun. Right, but I, I, I'm not sure you're following yeah, me. I, I'm, what I'm, I'm saying kind of though is, as to what you're t- wouldn't the material still stretch though? So I, I put on Superman's shirt, for example, and then somebody stabs me with a sword. The sword should still go into my chest through the material. You know what I mean? Not not through the material, but like the material stretches. So, that- so the material and the sword go into my body because my body is not bulletproof. You know what I'm saying? It's the the bulletproof uh, thing is I see what you're, Superman. I, I see what you're you, saying now. Right. I can, Does I, that follow? I can honestly go either way on that. Because going with your theory and, and sticking to it, it's kind of like a bulletproof vest where you get shot right. in the chest. It's not going to pierce you, but it, it's going to probably break a rib or crack your sternum right. or just you know like there's that scene in lethal weapon where uh it's one of the few action movies ever seen this where you know uh mel gibson gets shot with the bulletproof vest and he's talking like somebody just punched him in the chest like he right. looks like he's in pain so I, oh it still hurts like a you know yeah so i see what yeah, you're just saying yeah, yeah. This, is, this is comic book physics i mean it's the same thing like okay explain to me how master jailer didn't find clark kent's clothes Oh, in the, in the pouch. In the pocket. Yeah. That's a good one. I, I couldn't. Well, the only no prize I could think of for that is that sometimes wasn't uh, the clothes, like he would like super compress them to like wafer size or something. I remember a time when he even put them in his mouth, which is just <laughs> disgusting. But yeah. But no, I mean, that's the thing is I feel almost silly pointing this out, but I couldn't help but. In the instances when the Master Jailer is wearing Superman's outfit under his own outfit and the police are shooting the hell out of him, the fact that he's gloating saying, ha ha ha, you fools, I'm bulletproof. And I'm like, no, God damn it, you're not. It's Superman provides. I about something. Well, it it bothers me because Superman. I'm not making fun of you, by the way. I just want you to know that. I really like it when you dig (laughs) in like that because one it does make me think about things. And two, you are entertaining as hell. <laughs> well, thanks. But I'm ser- I'm really serious about this one because you know what made me think about it is in the comics, like say when Plastic Man or Reed Richards is shot by somebody, you can see there's, there's usually a great shot, especially with Reed Richards. There'll be a great shot of him, uh, you know, being all pliable and spread out and you can see the the bullets like i'm trying to try to describe it with my hands and you can't see me but you know the the bullets are going into his body and then his body because it's elastic is just giving in those those couple of spaces where the bullets are hitting him so he's not being pierced but his body is giving to allow the the bullet to to run its course, if you know what uh-huh. I mean, to lose its its velocity and all that, and that's the way I imagine Superman's costume would work in this instance. Is that the the bullets would hit it, they would they would go into the body of the wearer without piercing the material. So the material gives right through the person's body, like a normal bullet would do without breaking the material that that's what i think should happen in this because again it's not you know there's no rigidity to the costume it's it's not armor it's not a flak vest it's just clothes 
that just happen to be able to be stretched to in- infinite lengths, right? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I, I, I see what you're saying. What What you're asserting is that the bullet wouldn't pierce the material. Right. But because if, if you're, you're following the logic train to a, to a conclusion here. Because right. most people would say, well, the material's bulletproof, so you could wear it like a bulletproof vest. And there, right. I, I seem to remember stories where Superman would lose his powers and something like that would happen. Where it's like, oh, well, right. thank God I'm still bulletproof because my, you know, my clothes are bulletproof. But what you're basically saying is that why, like, if somebody stabbed him in the in the master jailer while wearing the thing, the blade would not pierce his skin like a nice sharp, like you know, slice. It would basically right. like be trying to shove a butter knife into somebody, and right. it would it might pierce the skin, but at the very least, it's going to do massive internal damaging. The same with right. bullets; it's going to kind of. Right dip into it it may not break the skin but if it does it's going to break the skin in a dull way so it's going to be even more painful than just getting shot because then it's basically like someone shoving their fist into your into your chest through your shirt and pushing your shirt into your body Right. So, well, you know, I, I just, I finally, it's taken me a while, but I finally came up with the, with what I think is a good analogy for what the hell I'm talking about. Take, take saran wrap and saran wrap a pillow and saran wrap a cinder block and then punch each of them with the pillow. It's going to have give in it. You know what I mean? Yes. You, you probably won't break the saran wrap. But you'll, you'll, that pillow is going to have give. You're going to put your fist into that pillow, but good. Punch that cinder block, you're probably going to break your friggin' hand. So don't. The so, cin- so we here at Tales of the Justice Society do not endorse punching cinder blocks. If you do that, please send me pictures so I can laugh my ass off. Yeah, and at then you, we okay? have somebody who's like a but black yeah, that, belt that's basically- Don in some you know like martial arts, <laughs> and he just blows it out. Says, ah, great. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I mean. That that's essentially what I'm talking about. It, it's it's the the cinder block or Superman in this case that provides the 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 bulletproofness, the rigidity, not the not the saran wrap. You know what I mean? It's it, the clothes and the saran wrap work the same way. They're they're just the covering. So I don't know. I, I've thought about this probably way too much, but like I say, it's little things like that in stories like this that sometimes kind of take me out of it a little bit, like. Gee, as much as I respect this writer, did they really understand the physics of this character in their in their universe kind of thing? Not hopefully hopefully that doesn't sound insulting of Paul Kupperberg, whose work I adore, but yeah, it, it just kind of pulled me out. Uh lastly, because I feel like I'm bogarting this section way too long, uh I seriously dig the Master Jailer. I really like this guy. What did you have on this issue, Mike? Uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I, I, I like Kupperberg's writing on Superman. The more I read it, the more I like it. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I, too, like the Master Jailer. I like the idea that he's this this fat kid that had a crush on Lana Lang, but she always only had eyes for Superboy, and he does everything he can to get her attention, and it just keeps failing. And that's kind of a, it's just a neat idea to me. Uh, I like the idea of making him forget. Again, this this is one of those things where you have somebody fighting Superman, but not on a power level. You have him fighting it on a, you know, a uh, 
kind of uh, uh, like trying to outsmart him basically you know i can't i can't punch superman but man if i can make him forget who he was and then he's gone i mean it's like basically that's what the wizard did in uh, the superman takes a wife story from action 484 uh, when the Earth Two, when Earth Two Clark Kent forgot he was Superman, and became this dynamic reporter and all that. So uh, mm-hmm. I enjoy, I I enjoyed that part of it. Uh, I think this one dude that works with him has a serious crush on Mike Benson. Uh, <laughs> keeps wanting him to change clothes, kind of creeping me out. But that's okay. I mean, you know, hey, you know, maybe it's a legitimate crush. I don't know, but no. And the monitor appearance was just perfunctory i guess is basically yeah. the way i would I, I would describe that it's just like, i like how you refer to it as a skype call it looks like he's it looks like the master <laughs> jailer has set up one of those like you know remember in the 80s you had like the miniature video games that were like it was like a, a you know, oh yeah you know, where yeah you know you had the screen and everything and the little joystick and it looked kind of like it was like a small scale version of like a pac-man game or something that's kind of what it looks <laughs> like he's talking into so, but I enjoyed it. It was good. <laughs> All right. Last time around here for this episode, we have DC Comics Presents number 78. The Monitor and Lila, in their last pre crisis appearance, direct their attention to Earth 3, where the crisis has already begun. The Monitor's role in this issue bottom four panels of the very last page. After an establishing shot of the satellite in Earth orbit, Lila, wearing a pink uh, necklace for this appearance, tells the Monitor that she believes the time has come. He says that he's been aware of the energy increases for hours now and that, yes, he believes that the entire reason why he began the role of the Monitor has begun. He orders Lila to cancel all frequencies to Earth's criminal population. Presumably this means across all time frames and universes, as we have clearly clearly seen that he has been everywhere in the DC multiverse these past months. And I just want to read from you, uh, read to you rather, the last couple of word balloons and the uh, teaser box at the end here. So the monitor says they have all been tested. We know their strengths and weaknesses. We no longer must continue the sham of providing counsel. Our true purpose here has begun. Now scan Earth 3. I fear the trouble we have sensed begins there. At last, the monitor scheme. It begins in crisis on infinite Earths. And that just gives me goosebumps. I throw a flag on that play. <laughs> now here's the thing, folks. If you look pretty much anywhere that there is a reading list for Crisis on Infinite Earths, especially these pre-crisis monitor appearances leading up to it, you will generally see this listed as the last thing. It's definitely listed that way in the crossover index. However, um, for purposes of this, I've elected to do these basically month to month as they appeared. So things are going to be a little, seeming a little bit out of continuity, but I just personally, just that, that, you know, that anal retentive part of my brain just wants to kind of do these and the way that they were published, the way that I remember them coming out when I was a kid, the way that they really did come out as opposed to the way that they fit necessarily in, in the chronology. And of course we may pay 
play fast and loose with our own rules on that because uh, I don't know, Mike, is the is the jury in yet on whether we're going to cover that? Um, what's that book that's essentially like issue four point? 4.0 or whatever we haven't the, decided yet i don't know if we're gonna yeah. do it like after we get all the coverage done just as an addendum or yeah yeah so yeah we will decide one way or the other but it, you know that one may end up being incorporated into the story or it may not so like i say we may play fast and loose with our own rules but it, it just it to me it just seems for one i'll be I'm perfectly frank it was a little bit easier to do it this way but also it just seems more logical to do it in the order that they were actually published rather than trying to come up with some sort of time frame of when do these appearances actually happen in the in-story context, if you know what I mean. Um, anyway, uh, notes on this one, uh, real brief. Uh, the story, uh, as I mentioned, is usually the last on any list of pre-crisis monitor appearance you see because of its direct lead-in to Crisis on Infinite Earths number one. I found it very hard to believe that this was written by the same writer as Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, Marv Wolfman, because I got to be honest, I didn't dig it that much. Perhaps uh, it was mostly due to the lackluster art. And I, man, I hesitate to say that because every time I, I seem like I'm slagging Kurt Swan, I get a, a bunch of mail about it. But I'm sorry, it's just, it's not inspiring uh page do uh page two rather the death of immortal man <laughs> now this was kind of odd because for one it makes superman seem mighty friggin careless because he flies up <laughs> into the air to smash these rocks that the giant i don't even know what this guy's name is the giant enemy is throwing at him Superman uses his heat vision and stuff to, to knock the rocks out of the way. And the one rock that Superman doesn't get happens to kill the one character who is immortal. So that, you know, I mean, he, he regenerates is what I mean. So that, you know, thank God it wasn't dolphin or somebody because they'd have been dead, dead <laughs> as opposed to temporarily dead. It just makes Superman seem kind of sloppy in this instance. Um, my only other notes jump in way the hell ahead in this story practically to the end page 23 i thought it was really fun that uh one of the characters when superman has them all wrapped up in his uh, indestructible cape and he's spinning them wildly so that they can vibrate through the time stream one of them says uh hey this is no worse than space mountain at disneyland i just got a kick out of that and also on that same page page 23 panel 5 uh, I thought this was worth quoting the uh, the three dudes here. The three th this is a, a crossover, by the way, uh, Superman and the Forgotten Heroes, and three of the Forgotten Heroes are, are commenting, and uh, one of them says, "Our history books did not lie. Superman is the greatest hero of all." And another one says, uh, "He is the ideal we all strive for." And I I just I like that. Damn straight, damn straight. That's what the third guy should be saying. The big bulbous headed freak with the red skin. Damn straight, he should be saying, but he's not. <laughs> that's all i got on this one what did you think mike um the story itself was fine i mean it's the forgotten heroes the forgotten villains it's a, it's, it's a cute story hey you know like who's who's coming up so you'll know who these people are a little farther down the line i gotta tell you that that monitor appearance kind of is one of my main exhibits in the they were just making this up as they go along follow me on this one you look at the, the, the dialogue that is presented to us on that final page, right? Okay. So we've got Lila and the monitor there. 
and why can't I get to that page? Okay, here we go. Monitor, have you le- have you yet located either Krakow or the Enchantress? No, even my sophisticated equipment, blah, blah, blah. I have already have Monitor and Monitor. Yes, Isla, I believe the time has come. I detect the energies forming. I have been aware of the energy increases for hours now, and yes, I believe the reason I began the role as Monitor is begun. Cancel all frequencies to Earth's criminal population. They have all been tested. We know their strengths and weaknesses. We no longer must continue the sham of providing counsel. Our true purpose here has begun. Now scan Earth 3. I fear the trouble we have uh, begins there. Okay, going with how that's presented, Earth 3 is the first world that should be destroyed. It's not. There is a world destroyed before Earth 3 in Crisis on Infinite Earths number 1. And, following the history of Crisis on Infinite Earths, the Anti-Monitor has been destroying worlds for eons now. Like, more and more are falling. So, the real reason that he has begun his role as the Monitor has not begun. Okay? If you're, if you're just strictly speaking that it's him trying to gather warriors together, then I can kind of see it. Yeah, that was going to be my, my no-prize argument, actually, is that... I think, I don't know that it, it, that he comes right out and says it, but I think it's heavily implied in one of the early issues, possibly number one, I forget, but it, I think it's heavily implied in the beginning of the story, Crisis Proper I'm talking about, that the Monitor intended to recruit the crime syndicate. And that doesn't happen because of what happens to Earth 3. So I'm thinking, I'm, I'm with you, I totally buy what you're saying, but my no prize would be is that world that's destroyed first. I don't believe we see any super beings on no. that one. If, if memory serves, we have pariah drugged to that world to witness its death, but there's nobody fighting for mm-hmm. it. And we don't see that until the next world to be destroyed, which is earth three, which we clearly see the crime syndicate and uh, Alexander Luthor fighting for the survival of that world. So I'm going to, this is yeah i know it's kind of bs but i'm going to postulate that maybe up until we reach earth 3 there aren't any superpowers you know super superheroes and that's why he feels now it can start because now is the time he starts to recruit his but if that's true then it seems like monitor is the worst procrastinator yeah. <laughs> in the history of anything because he waits until the crisis is approaching the worlds of the people that he wants to recruit, which is kind of stupid. And, and that's and uh-huh. that's kind of my point is that his role as the monitor, he there, there it, it began the moment the anti monitor started destroying planets when they right. both woke up, and you know he started consuming consuming universes and increasing his power base uh you know the anti-monitor did the monitor was basically trying to fight against him and i know it's kind of hard to to try to be linear about this because it's not a linear concept especially since he's been jumping time and universes but i just take exception a little bit of tweaking of the dialogue and everything would have been fixed but Right. That line, I fear the trouble we have sensed begins there, implies that there hasn't been a problem up until Earth 3 is destroyed. And that's clearly not the case. 
So that's the only reason I'm calling shenanigans on this. I'm not saying Marv Wolfman's full of shit or it's crap and the entire thing falls apart. I'm just going to go burn all my comics now. I mean, it's it's not that extreme. But it just it, it, it further proves my point that I think a lot of this stuff was kind of made up at the last minute. Uh, Possibly. So, and, and it doesn't detract my enjoyment from it. It's just one of those things where if you're going to critically analyze something, you critically analyze it, you know? You don't... Well, I, you know, rather than, than see it, though, as, as any sort of, of, of indictment or any sort of harsh criticism, actually, in a, in a strange sort of way, I see it as that much more of a compliment to those involved because they pulled it off in a way that I don't think has ever been pulled off again. Mm-hmm. I mean, recently, very recently in comics history, we saw yet another uh, universe-changing event that many believe is not coming across near as successfully and that also was kind of uh, not thoroughly planned and kind of haphazardly uh, pulled off. And so, you know, when something does work, you, you know, you yourself said, and I, and I did as well, I, I'm right along with you, you know, you yourself said that, you know, you always had this this feeling of it being very well thought out, very well planned, and, you know, perfectly executed, and, and we're kind of seeing, eh, that's not entirely the case. I think that that just stands as a testament to the men and women involved, that they were able to to pull off that magic trick, because I bought it. I mean, you know, as a kid, and, and pretty much all my life, you know, up until really, as you say, doing the homework for this, I, I bought that. You know, I really thought, no, 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 this was planned over years, it was meticulously thought out, and it was perfectly executed, and while I still stand by a, a lot of that perfectly executed, yeah, you can see where there was a lot of last minute, you know, things, changes, tweaks, you know, that sort of thing that uh, that I think is kind of the fun of pointing it out anyway. So I'm actually glad you caught this because, I, yeah, I got to agree with you. It does add a level of inconsistency. So I think it works great as... Uh, as that teaser, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Now it's begun at last crisis on infinite earths. But yeah, when you look at the big picture of it, yeah, it doesn't quite mesh up the way that it might appear on the, on the surface. I, uh, it's a good it's, catch. It's just these weird, it's, it's how my mind works. And, and it really comes from when my lovely wife gave me the absolute edition of crisis for Christmas years ago. And mm-hmm. the main reason I wanted that book was that it had the supplementary material where they reprinted the crossover indexes and they reprinted the indexes. But it has this... And we're going to be referencing the crap out of this thing as as time goes on. But you read why the crisis happened, which we will get into in the first episode of the crisis episode. So you read why, you know, what were the origins of it? And I'm not talking because I joke and I will joke, you know, everybody has to mention Flash of Two Worlds. But I'm talking real world. What forces within DC Comics, what creative forces said, we need to change what has been the status quo for well over a decade now? And, you know, what writers decided that? And really, you know, this is going to sound like, you know, I'm going to be like, you know, Jim Garrison putting, you know, the, the entire, uh, you know, putting uh, Clay Shaw on trial and JFK. It's not that kind of, kind of party. But if we're going to do this and we're going to do it right, we need to look at all angles. 
And right. to me, I have to ask the question, you know, we're going to be asking a question at the beginning and we're going to be answering it at the end. So it's going to take a year to answer this question. But it's like, was it worth it? And were the creators involved right to do it? So, I mean, and, and that's a separate question from how good the story is. Th- th- those are right. two completely different things, you know. You know, I can enjoy a story all day long. May not be, may, may have been needed to be told, but I enjoyed it. And when I, when I started reading that, I'm like, wow, these, these people didn't really have a clear idea what was going on. And to me, that's interesting, but it's also kind of cool. Because it, it's kind of like, you know, early Marvel by Stan Lee, where he's doing everything by the seat of his pants. So, no, it, 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 I'm, I'm really looking forward to all of this. So, and, and it got me excited, too. I was like, wow, Wolfman was able to, in one of these appearances, actually directly tie into it, even though we've got one more book to talk about next time. So, and, and I think the shortest edition of... Crisis management <laughs> after the longest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was a monster, and this was a monster-length episode. Uh, if you have listened all the way to this point, I appreciate your and welcome uh, to two thousand attention. And, yeah, <laughs> but no, I, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Yeah, this is definitely the most uh, intense and, and longest uh, crisis management. But you know, we we inspired some really good conversation. I think so. Uh, hopefully, the listeners enjoy it. Hey, you asked for us to come back. We're back, so don't complain when it's a four-hour show. <laughs> but uh, at this point, we should probably go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, as I promised to do, I'm going to try to point out what we will be looking at in future episodes. So very next episode, we will be covering All-Star Squadron number 43 and Infinity Incorporated number 12. And in our, you know, I think recently we called it uh, the last uh, crisis management. And then it turns out it's not quite the last pre-crisis management episode. <laughs> We'll also be looking at GI Combat number 275 and The Warlord number 91. Yes, just two books. Two books, not seven books next time. So that's what you can look forward to. So let's go ahead and wrap this puppy up. Did you have any uh, closing thoughts, Mike? Um, I hate Marvel. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. What? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's a terrible way to end it. No. Um, wow, you put me on the spot. Thank you. <laughs> I have now, now. I am not now, nor have I ever been a member of the Communist Party. You've reached the end to another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America. You can find this show as well as an entire slew of other awesome podcasts on a wide variety of geek-related subjects from giant monsters to time lords to movie commentaries to fangirl interests at www.twotruefreaks.com. There you can hear Scott on such shows as Star Wars Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Comics Monthly Monday, and occasionally Back to the Bins. Mike is on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Long Box, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which can be found at www.fortressofbailytube.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos. 
They love to hear themselves talk. More importantly, at least according to their publicist, they want to hear from you! So you can reach the guys by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks network shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com. Click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. You can also support this show and the Two True Freaks Network as a whole when you shop on Amazon. Again, simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of that will get kicked to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Thank you for listening and come back next time for another exciting episode of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. Mm-hmm.